0: Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Today is Saturday, January twenty third, twenty twenty one, starting at one09 PM in Denver, Colorado. And I think this is going to be something like the two hundred ninetieth episode of the show, but I'm not sure yet. So I'm going to be talking today with astrologer Ronnie Gale Dreyer, and we're going to be looking at the early history of the North and South Node of the Moon, uh, both in Western as well as in Indian astrology over the course of the past two thousand years. So, hey, Ronnie, thank you for joining me today.
1: Oh, it's great to be here. It's been a long time in coming.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think we've been working on (laughs) workshopping this episode for like a year now off and on and writing different (laughs) outlines and things like that and doing different historical research about the origins of the nodes in -hmm. in Indian astrology and in Western astrology. But we're finally doing it, and I think this is going to be a good discussion. So um, let's jump into it first. I wanted to introduce you to my audience. So you're- um the author of the 1997 book Vedic Astrology a Guide to the Fundamentals of Jyotish mm-hmm. which um is a intro book on Indian astrology that I know a lot of people got their start with when it comes to Indian astrology and that's something that you specialize in is Indian astrology in addition to having a background in western astrology at the same time right
1: mhm mm-hmm. yeah yeah that was one of the first um, the very first incarnation of that book was um was called indian astrology um and uh, indian astrology i believe it was called a western approach to the ancient art i don't even remember anymore my exact subtitle and um and then the book got revised um and reissued um and i okay. had already written a book on venus which was um it's a western book about the goddess and i'm trying to revise that one too but yeah Veda, the vedic astrology book was one of the early ones along with uh, James Braha, David Frawley, a whole bunch of us who did beginning texts.
0: Right. So you're ago. one of the first waves of um like western modern practitioners of modern western astrology that had been yeah. studying western astrology for a few decades but then you got into studying Indian astrology and that was like a whole movement that really started in in what like the 1980s and yeah. early 90s.
1: Well earlier than that um there had been i mean there had been um somebody um a few people who had who had written some books uh, Robert DeLuce wrote the first very big book called constellational astrology um i don't know if you can still get it and he wrote that in i believe the late 60s but in the 70s was the big wave when people started going to India um they went to India to learn um music um, went to ashrams. Some people just went because you could actually, um, get on a bus as I did. Um, I mean, this is all in the introduction to my book, but you could get on a bus. I was living in Holland and, uh, and Greece. I went to Greece and then I took a bus. Um, it was called the magic bus and it went all the way to India and it went through, um, Turkey and, um, Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan and through India. And you could do it in those days. And many of us, I mean, James Braha had the same experience, David Frawley, myself, Nalini. Um, there were a, a whole bunch of people, and we just learned astrology. We found a teacher and, and did it. And so that was the mid 70s. Um, and then uh, we came back, a lot of us, and then other people went in the early 80s. Um, James Braha's book was published in 1986. Um, and my first book was published in 1990, the Indian astrology book as was okay. David Frawley's. Yeah.
0: So. Okay, yeah. And then not long after, I think a few years later, the American Council of, of Vedic Astrology was formed so that, that you guys started forming some actual organizations for the practice of Indian astrology in, in the US. hmm
1: Yeah, they had Dennis Harness and uh, David Frawley and somebody else named Stephen Kwong. They had their very first conference in 1992 in San Rafael, and uh, Dennis, as myself, and, and James Braha, we all had studied Western astrology. Um, and uh, we met in D.C. at UAC in 1992, um, and a lot of us were invited to go to this conference. And suddenly we all met people who, like ourselves, you know, Westerners who had studied in India, and also people who studied here because um, a lot of the spiritual movements, um, you know, like uh, the TM movement, um, astrology was Maharishi brought a lot of astrology um there and encouraged people to learn astrology. Um, That's, and uh, then,
0: transcendental meditation,
1: right. Transcendental meditation, TM. okay. and um and also Yogananda's um uh, group, and uh, they also do it and still do it. A lot of people practice um astrology. And we learned about all these other people. I mean, suddenly, I met all these people. I had no idea. That there was a huge bunch of people who were practicing Indian astrology because I was in New York, the only one I knew, except for for Indians, you know, who had been doing it for many, many years. So it was it was great, and then that that kind of snowballed and developed, you know, over many years.
0: Yeah, um, that 1992 um, lineup I always thought was striking because I always put it in my chronologies when I talk about the significance of the Uranus-Neptune conjunction that was happening around that time and how that United Astrology Conference in 1992 was also when Project Hindsight started getting going. And so the whole revival of traditional astrology really exploded not long after that time, traditional Western astrology, and that it was interesting that there was this movement to create the organization or some organizations and different things surrounding the practice of Indian astrology at the same time. So it was kind of like a parallel development that was almost happening in in tandem.
1: Well, what happened also was the interesting thing was a lot of this happened at the 92 UAC right. um, in DC because yeah. that was, I believe, when Robert Schmidt and Zoller and Hand, they really were talking about, let's do something, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, um, some of us—I mean, we there was no Indian astrology track at UAC. I mean, okay. I was the coordinator of the first one in '95, um, but we were all there, meeting each other, and um, and then the hindsight that the the conclave that I went to in '95, right? The first conclave was '94, and then '95 was the second one, and that was very focused on uh, Indian astrology and tradition and classical Western. Um, K. N. Rao was at that um conclave um and there was a whole meeting of the two traditions because they have so much in common i mean they they transmitted so much knowledge between them and and we all discovered really that classical western astrology or hellenistic astrology had more in common with indian astrology than modern western astrology had in common with classical western so right. there was so many things. It was it was wonderful that conclave. Actually, I met Demetra there, and 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 uh, who was one of my close friends, as you know, Demetra George. Um, as Susie Cox was there, um, the Neguses were there. I mean, everybody was at that conclave. It was great. It's, yeah, you know, I mean, all of that wonderful. sounded like
0: really amazing times. Um, just in terms of having all those threads of ancient astrology really come pouring out in different ways during that time frame. Um, so that's relevant to what we're talking about today. And and mm-hmm. so just a complete part of your story, not to give your entire bio- biography, but <laughs> you went back to school and you've been studying Sanskrit, and some of the things that you've been working on over the past decade are translating some texts from Sanskrit into English, so from some ancient Indian texts. And one of them that you've been working on is one on like women's birth chart astrology in ancient India, right?
1: Well, That was my master's thesis. So I went back to school in 2008. Um, and again, Demetra George was one of my inspirations because she had gone back to school to get a master's degree as well in classics. Right. And um, and she gave me some wonderful hints about how to actually do that, go back to school, what to do, what not to do. A and lot of
0: astrologers did that. It seemed like in the past couple of decades, you guys went back to college and got advanced degrees and studied like ancient languages and stuff in order to further your work in astrology?
1: Yeah. I mean, mostly I had wanted to go back to school for a long time. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then suddenly, I realized that Columbia was here, and that was a school that taught Sanskrit. Not every school in the country does. And when I went back to school, I had to start like at the very beginning, and then I applied for a master's degree. And my thesis was translating um, and comment doing a commentary on five chapters um in the text that now I'm involved with doing some translating work um for short I'll call it VYJ but it's called Vrida Yavana Jataka and it's never been translated into English and the five chapters I did were on women's astrology um and and since then I've been working with a few other scholars and of course, I'm not even near them, but um, I think they need me more for the astrology, and they are really much better in the Sanskrit. Uh, but the translation, sometimes, as you know, with classical works, you have to find like the right words to kind of give you the the idea of what the um, ancients were trying to convey. So, um, and I kind of just wanted to do that. I wanted to go back to school to learn it because some of the Indian translations are are awful, you know. So I really wanted to kind of for myself.
0: What's the dating on that text and what's the focus of those chapters?
1: So the Yavana Jataka, um, David Pingree um, dated the Yavana Jataka, um, which is the astrology of the Greeks, um, and he dated it to about 269-70. He thought it was also first done in about 149 um, CE, and then Spuja Dvaja took it and put it into meter. Um, A few other scholars now are doubting whether there was that original text that came from Alexandria because it it disappeared. But the idea of that Greek astrology was transmitted and that is when horoscopic astrology started was definitely probably around the, the third and fourth centuries. Vrddhiyavanajataka Pingu dated as between 320 and 325 CE, um, but there are a lot of people who think that the Vrddhiyavanajataka was first. So uh, people are kind of trying to d- redate things, mm-hmm. um, but right now that's kind of like the um, the approximate dating of it. Um, and it's much larger than uh, Yavanajataka; it's like 71 chapters. So it's it's a big <laughs> it's a big effort um, the- to translate.
0: In the Greek tradition, they will sometimes default to the delineations are given by default for men. And then occasionally they'll say, however, in the charts of women, you have to look at it like this. Or in some instances where there's not a difference, they'll just say, and you apply the same techniques just the same way in the charts of women. So what's different about those chapters that you worked on that make them specifically for women?
1: Those chapters specifically, and Every every text that came after that, some of the classical texts that most people who study Indian astrology are familiar with, will have a chapter um called stri Jataka, Jataka is astrology and stri is the word for feminine or woman. <clears throat> and what these chapters did, there were absolutely five chapters. So the first, you know, one um has to do with the 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 ascendants. You know, if you have the ascendant in this sign, it's good or bad. And of course the relationship to women is that the fire and air signs are bad, the earth and water signs are good. Um and then the next chapter is the moon in each of the signs. The third chapter in this women's series is about the nakshatras. Um and then the fourth one are the planets in the houses, and the fifth one is the Raja Yogas, which is um combinations for um, royalty or wealth. Um, So most of it is you can marry a man who has, um, you know, you can be a pauper or you can be very low caste. And if you have this Raja Yoga, you'll still marry a man. And then there's a chapter in um, the text for nakshatras for men, you don't have that in the later texts, so in the later text, you'll have one chapter on nakshatras, uh, one chapter on the moon in the houses, but then you do have, as in the Hellenistic tradition, a chapter on women's astrology that says the same thing, that if you don't apply this um, to the uh, astrology in the book, then you can apply it to the woman, otherwise default it to what is um, given um, in, in, the, in the text. So that if it's, you know, the moon through the houses, you can apply it um, to your chart as well. But there's a lot of very different things as you go on. The women's astrology is very different than the five chapters that I translated. They're they're about many different things. A lot of them are about, you know, menstrual cycles, you know, what is the chart of your first menstruation? What does that say about womanhood and how are you going to marry and if you're widowed? So it's it's a little bit of a different tradition. Than um, what I translated. And I can't really find um, anything preceding that, um, which I'm trying to actually, that it came from. You know, there's, there are Egyptian um, texts, Demotic texts, that people are now translating. There's a huge project in Germany. Um, a lot of papyri are being translated. And they're finding there that there's, there's things about women's astrology. So it might be interesting to see if yes. it came from Demotic texts.
0: So, there were specific yeah. technical things that they were doing differently when interpreting women's charts. And one of the questions I had maybe you know the answer, maybe you don't, but in the Western tradition, I've been trying to document and identify who were the first. Like, there's references to women seeing astrologers as clients in the first century. And then there's, you know, Hypatia in like the fifth century is the first. Woman that we know of by name that probably had some training in astrology, but we're not really sure if she was an astrologer necessarily. Her father was a famous astronomer. And then it's not until like the ninth century that, um, you know, Kenneth Johnson wrote that paper 10 years ago in an NCGR journal about Baran of Baghdad being one of the first women that we know of who had training in astrology. And she was associated with a famous prediction where she supposedly saved the king at the time from an assassination attempt using astrological means which is kind of like a legendary story but she's the first woman that we know of by name that we can name as an astrologer do you know in the indian tradition if there's any comparable figures or at what point you know it's it, we start seeing women who are practitioners of astrology in any general sense or specific sense
1: Absolutely, that, that's a that's a fascinating question because I have no idea. I mean, these texts that were written astrology for women, um, we presume that they are written for men. You know, fathers who want to marry off their daughters, um, men who want to find wives. Um, that they're not necessarily written for women, even though there were, of course, a lot of Brahmin women who were very well read and educated. Um, but there's there's really not, to my knowledge, anyway, anyway, any texts. That were written by women, um, or really addressed for to women, even though there is astrology for women, um, and and it's interesting as you even move into the modern era. I knew so many astrologers from India over the years who told me about the fact that they learned from their mothers, um, and their mothers were brilliant astrologers. But they did not do it for a living because the, in India, a lot of the traditional astrology, I mean, the the beauty about India is that it's an unbroken tradition. So you get families that, you know, are giving their knowledge to their children and their grandchildren, you know, and all that. And a lot of the children are taking over, you know, they used to anyway, you know, you take over your father's profession and they had libraries full of books and notes and charts. I mean, amazing things that you'll, you'll never find in a, an academic library. Um, and a lot of those um men who hung their shingles you know i mean my astrologers people i learned in india um it was the same thing their sons were going to take over the practice but their wives um were brilliant astrologers and some of them were brilliant sanskritists and and in fact i went to a lecture a few years ago where a a woman a professor was doing a survey in india and found that because so many um, not just men, but now, of course, a lot of women are, are highly educated and are doctors and IT people. They're all choosing that profession, but there are still women, the women, the people who are choosing to study humanities, um, and languages are all women. Um, because, you know, they're not thinking necessarily of, you know, material and, and, and being successful in the corporate world or the material world. So it's fascinating that there are a lot of women. I'm assuming even back in in um, the first millennium, second millennia, who did study astrology, but by name, I I don't know. I don't know. It'd be fascinating to find them.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially in traditions. I always think back, even back to the Mesopotamian period, where you have um, families of astrologers and like family lineages of people. Handing it down from generation to generation, and it staying within families partially as an oral tradition and maybe partially as a written tradition. That there must have been, um, you know, women or daughters who learned astrology as part of that, or from their fathers, or what have you, as part of that tradition. Even if we don't have names or like texts that survive from them, um, but certainly in the modern period, in like the 20th century, there's there's become like famous. Women who are astrologers from India, like I think, um, Gayatri Devi, Vas- Devi Vastu, who's the daughter of B.V. Raman, has taken over his editorship of Modern Astrology Magazine. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the the children now there are two magazines. Um, the son, one son, took over one <laughs> that magazine, and then Gayatri, I think, uh, created another. So they they kind of um, took on. They inherited B.V. Raman's um you know libraries and knowledge of course and gayatri really was the one who um practiced a lot and was kind of his her father's apprentice she's a brilliant astrologer and she's the one who um you know they will call up to time events you know politicians and inaugurations prime ministers because they all use astrology to time their events um or they try to anyway um and uh, and and she's she's the one they'll call because she was affiliated with B V Raman who um, for those who don't know, I mean, he was the one who modernized and made popular uh, Indian astrology. He had a magazine. He wrote a lot of books. Um, so he, you know, you you say B.V. Raman, and everybody knows who he was.
0: Okay. Um, yeah, I think I read her one of her books on horary or on prajna was one of the <laughs> ones that Dennis recommended that was very good when I was studying Indian astrology at Kepler. Um, All right, so we're getting way off track. I want to, to, because that was a really interesting discussion (laughs) because I wanted to have, but let's get to our primary discussion and let me set up the premise. So, the premise of this discussion about the nodes today is that I realized many years ago that the modern, some of the modern meanings of the nodes are actually pretty recent. And this is something I discussed in episode 137 with Adam Summer. Where we got on this long digression about the nodes, and specifically, um, in particular, the idea that the south node represents your past life in the birth chart, or that the north node represents your future life in a birth chart, that's become kind of ingrained in some schools of modern astrology over the past few decades. But if you look back further than the past three or four decades, you don't see that as much, and if you go past like the earliest reference I can find to that, and the guy that seems to have introduced it, as far as I can tell, is Dane Rudyard in his 1936 book, *The Astrology of Personality*. And then there's another really crucial book by Martin Schulman on the nodes from like the 1970s that takes the concept further. And some astrologers, like um, Stephen Forrest, for example, told me that he was really influenced by Schulman's book in then taking that further with the evolutionary astrology schools, where they really focus on the nodes having to do with past and future lives. Mm-hmm. So, but if you go back further than that in the Western tradition, I realized that that concept just completely disappears, indicating that it's more recent. And one of the issues is that most modern astrologers just assume that because they know that ideas of like karma and reincarnation existed in the Indian tradition, they assume that Indian astrologers must have associated past lives with the South Node as well. But in fact, if you look at the Indian tradition prior to the past few decades, that concept is also completely absent, is my understanding um, as well. So it's not something that came from the Indian tradition. So that being the case, um, then I wanted to talk about with you today what the nodes did indicate prior to modern times, both in the Western tradition as well as in Indi- the Indian astrological tradition and talk about where some of the ancient or traditional meanings of the nodes came from. So that's kind of the the, per- the premise of this discussion. Do you agree for the most part with how I set it up in that, for example, is it a true statement in having studied the Indian tradition that they don't, prior to modern times, tend to associate the nodes with like past lives?
1: Well, I have. To, so the first thing I have to say is that even though we're talking about the Indian tradition, there are a lot of different lineages. So this is one of the things, mistakes that people do make. I mean, I'm not saying you make mistakes because I make that mistake all the time. But you, there are a lot of different lineages, and a lot of people use the lineage that they're taught. So you, so it's a very guru, guru student, um, you know, tradition in India, and that's really how you learn. You find a teacher. There are texts, of course um and a lot of the texts will talk about the whole chart as being a chart of um of reincarnation because because karma and reincarnation the whole idea of what's called samsara um is kind of vital to the uh, thought process and because of that um and even some of the classical texts like briyajataka will begin and briyajataka VYJ, they begin the first the first chapter says that the, um, the, the chart, the horoscope, um, is like a, it's like a mirror. You look at it and it tells you where you came from. And now you are going to work things out. There are some traditions, however, um, that do say that the South Node, um, does represent your past, your past life and Rahu or the north node, represents the karma you're creating in this life. But they're not negating the fact that the rest of the horoscope also has to do with past lives. So anything that you look at, the fifth house, the ninth house, those are all houses that tell you what you've inherited from another life because they are the houses of good fortune. The ninth house is the house of dharma, and the fifth house is the house of things that you've gotten from another life. But in the texts themselves... Um, it doesn't say particularly that um, Ketu is the south, is is past and Rahu is the future. Um, any planet in a certain position could indicate what your past is, because it's just you know it's just something that the whole horoscope indicates, you know wh- yeah. whatever it is. So that's
0: my my understanding of Indian astrology is that the entire chart represents your yeah, karma and exactly. things that are carried over inherited from past lives. But I just want to go back to something you just said because. That's not my my understanding in reading any actual translations of Indian texts at this point is that um, I've not seen an Indian text prior to modern times. So there are some modern texts, for example, by Camilla Sutton where it seems like they're taking the Western notion of associating the nodes with past and future lives and starting to integrate that within the context of Indian astrology but it's not something that's coming from the actual indian tradition itself of anything that i've seen from like parashara or um the Jataka itself or anything like that so cuz i don't want to but we should clarify that because i think that you saying that might have blown up the premise of this discussion so i want to clarify that before we move no, on no
1: what i'm saying is that in the texts themselves the the most the, the texts that we have that have been translated. There's nothing in there. And in fact, some of the texts don't even use Rahu Ketu. That's why I was saying to you that later on, they started using Rahu Ketu in the horoscope. The early texts do not even use Rahu Ketu in horoscopic astrology. So it took quite a few years, which we'll get into. What I was trying to say was that there are some lineages and some traditions that you're not going to read in the book who teach from their gurus and from their teacher that the south node does represent the past and the north node the future. It's not like a blanket thing that you're not gonna find it anywhere, but they're not in the texts. I think that's the thing that is, is that you have to kind of understand about the Indian tradition, that you're going to find different lineages that are not in books. And then if you see a teacher at a conference or or see him, he will say, let's say South Node can give you the past and the North Node the future. But you're not necessarily going to read it in a book. Now, that is going to be his tradition that maybe he learned from his teacher. So I think that that's the other thing with an, an oral tradition, is that there are a lot of things that are in the texts, but then there's a lot of things that aren't in the texts. I was not taught that the south node is the, sou- is the past and the north node is the future. Uh, that's not something I was taught in India, and it wasn't anything I found in the text. All I'm saying is that there are some teachers, um, in fact, I'm bringing this up only because Kamila is actually having a conference this weekend, and I heard one of the Indian teachers talk about the nodes as being uh, south node being past karma and north node being future, and I yeah, do I, feel I think
0: that's something that's coming from the Western tradition, though. Like I and I don't get stuck on that too much, but that's a really that's basically the premise of this entire discussion. Is I've never met any Indian astrologer that was drawing on the older tradition um, that used that past and future life premise that wasn't getting that from influence that they were taking from the modern Western tradition. Because we just don't see that prior to like the twentieth century, it comes out of nowhere, and it's coming out of the theosophists for the most part, who um, picked up and then ran with this concept, starting with Rudyard. Um, But that's pretty much the entire premise of this discussion. So I just want to make sure. I don't know. Um, no, what I'm t- what I'm saying. With
1: no, I agree that they're in the text, but my po- my point is that when you when you take India what you have to take into consideration is that there are a lot of things that you are not going to see in the libraries or the books. If you meet somebody or meet a teacher, he will tell you things and, and you will not have a clue where they came from. Some of them come from Nadi texts that are, that are not even translated. So that's why Indian astrology is so complex, because you get these families and these traditions. So that that's my point, that if you're talking about theosophists, the Theosophists were based in India. I mean, that's where it started, the whole Theosophy movement. So when things come into it, you don't always know exactly where they're coming from in terms of an actual year or an actual text. So our discussion is still completely valid. That's what I, well, that's my point, because most of us are learning from those texts that we're getting. Um, but most of us in this day and age are not running to India anymore. I mean, that was, you know way 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 in the past and you will get through of course social media you know the internet you you can meet many many indian astrologers now so my point is that you're going to hear a lot of things that people tell you and you're going to say well where is it coming from and they're going to say to you well it's coming from my mother or it's coming from my uncle or it's coming from the parampara which is the you know kind of tradition so I guess that that was my point that I wanted to make. But what we were discussing before, um, you know, we were talking about this has to do with the books that you will read from and that were the texts that were available to the general public. They will not tell you that one planet in particular has to do with your past life or one planet in particular will have to do with the future. It will be the entire chart. So that is yeah. true. That's true. I was just adding that. I didn't mean to confuse you or negate because it doesn't negate anything we're saying at all.
0: Well, so I guess (laughs) we have to do the digression about um, interactions between Eastern and Western astrology and the continual sending back and forth of different doctrines and rubbing off on each other that astrologers do periodically just in the history of astrology, which is that anytime you put two astrologers in a room together, they'll begin to talk and compare notes, and um, comparing contrast techniques. And sometimes they'll have overlaps and sometimes they'll have areas of major disagreement, but through that interaction, there's often some sort of exchange that takes place. And this is one of the crucial factors about the history and transmission of astrology is that astrologers are constantly trading techniques from each other and sending them back and forth from language to language and culture to culture over history. So one of the only ways that we can tell what was happening during specific eras and try to date and do chronologies of like what texts what techniques were used when is by looking at the textual evidence of what are the astrologers saying at different points about the techniques that they use and how they're conceptualizing different things. Mm-hmm. So um part of our discussion today is just gonna be about going back and talking about the earliest ways that the astrologers are discussing the nodes and how that grew and developed and changed over time in both the Eastern and Western tradition until we get to modern times where things become a little bit different.
1: Mm -hmm. I didn't mean to throw you off. The reason I brought it up was only because this podcast goes out to so many people. And right now, there's so much information that people are getting from the internet and from different teachers. Some some valid and some not valid but the um the, many indian teachers who you know are kind of s- sitting in india or don't are, don't have huge websites or you know youtube channels or anything like that are practicing their astrology and they will have their own tradition as i said from families and things like that but when we are talking now about the whole idea of the texts and the textual tradition um, that that is still completely valid about the the nodes and and how we um and how we conceptualize them.
0: Yeah, so. and for me, what's important and one of the main things I wanted to do with this episode is is clarify what the traditional Indian views mm-hmm. were on the nodes, mm-hmm. and I think applying ideas of past and future lives to those is not a traditional concept that was done prior to the past century so honoring the indian tradition for me was going to be part of looking back and seeing how they actually did talk about it in the textual tradition mm-hmm. versus um just taking some of those western concepts that are being um put on top of it sort of for granted mm-hmm.
1: yeah i think i think that when you're well if you want to go back to you know the nodes the as I was I was saying to you when we were talking about this over the last year is that you really have two what I call interwoven threads. Um you have the nine planets, which were called Navagraha, and uh, of course, Sun through Saturn, and then Rahu Ketu, Rahu is the North Node, Ketu is the South Node. Um, and these were um honored um or propitiated in order to um wipe away any evil that the planets um, would bring because they were these forces that before they were used in horoscopic astrology were looked at as, you know, the uh, the forces that had to be appeased. Um, and the nodes were available, you know, people were talking about Rahu as the um, maker of eclipses, because that is the nodes are very 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 close to the sun and moon when you have an eclipse. So the whole idea of Rahu as a demon, let's say, was um, was there from the you know the Vedic times, from the time of the Vedas. But this is before horoscopic astrology, and so Rahu became this uh, demon. And once the horoscopic astrology started to materialize. Um, in the early, you know, third century, fourth century, what happened was they decided to appease them, and then also have um, what's called pujas to honor them or rituals, and they became part of what's called the Navagraha Mandala. So they were nine planets, and they were all in, you know, similar. Uh, positions. You know, the sun was in the middle and the other eight were all around each ruling a different direction, uh, which you can find in temples now. Even any temple, Hindu temple you go to, will have a room that has all these planets and they're going to be in the same exact positioning um, that they were then. Um, and before that, before they became um, anthropomorphic deities in temples, you know, they were represented with different shapes, different colors, um, different things that they put on these um, mandalas in order to appease the planets. Um, this was way before um, they became uh, affiliated with horoscopic astrology. In the earliest texts in Yavanajataka, which is a text you're very familiar with from the 3rd century, there's no mention of Rahu Ketu at all. The nodes are not even in there.
0: Right. Um, So that's a really important point. So, part of the mm -hmm. point is that in the early history of Indian astrology, um, the nodes aren't used as much as you would expect that they should be because they become so prominent later on, but they do eventually get integrated into the tradition in Indian astrology. And also, one of the things you're saying is that the mythology behind Rahu and Ketu was originally a separate mythology that wasn't necessarily connected with the nodes, but then it later came to be connected with the nodes
1: well rahu was the demon that formed eclipses um and the whole idea of um how uh, rahu became rahu um is a very well known myth um called the churning of the ocean um and the uh, the the demons and the gods had to find the amrita which is like ambrosia it's what you drank in order to become immortal they had to get it out of the um of the ocean um, and they churned the ocean in order to get it, and once it came came out, um, the demon Rahu wanted to celebrate with the gods, um, but they didn't want him to, so he kind of disguised himself and drank some of this um, <clears throat> amrita, which is what the gods drank to become immortal, um, and then what happened was Vishnu threw his discus and decapitated Rahu. So that's how Rahu became known as, you know, the, the, the demon, the head. But the... Whole idea of the myth is that Rahu was able to come out during eclipses. That was the only time he could be seen. Um, Other than that, he was, you know, banned from uh, from the world. But the the idea of the nine um, the nine grahas, which is what they called planets, um, was something that they used for propitiation purposes. Ketu. Was uh, which is the south node eventually was a comet. The word ka- Ketu means smoke, comet, formless. So in fact, they had what's called the Navagraha, but they were not even not, Rahu and Ketu used in the horoscopes. So there's nothing in Yavanajataka, um, in Vrida Yavanajataka, the text from the fourth century, um, they are uh, they're, they're mentioned once for directional purposes. Um, and then in Brihachadika, which is a major, major text in the sixth century from uh, Varaha Mihira, who's a very well known astrologer that everything kind of, you know, came from, he did not use them either in the horoscope. Um, so what's, what's fascinating and what people don't understand, realize is that even though they were used uh, as part of this Navagraha, and they were used as part of the uh, mandala, the the altars. Um, they were not used in astrology, in horoscopic astrology. Um, I believe the Hellenistic period there were some astrologers who used them, but I don't think they were used that widely either. Were sure,
0: uh, no, and that's so. That's an interesting parallel where the nodes are not mentioned very frequently in the early Hellenistic texts. So there are some references that go back pretty early in one of the early birth charts from like the 1st century BCE, although it may have not been cast until the 1st century CE, um, does contain one or both of the nodes. And then there are sporadic mentions of the nodes from Dorotheus in the 1st century CE onwards, but um, they don't start to get used and they're not fully integrated in the system in a major way until the time of Rhetorius. At the very end of the Hellenistic tradition, in like the sixth or seventh century, and with Rhetorius, it's not really clear if he's just um, formalizing something, if he's just articulating something that was already there earlier, and he's just making it more explicit, or if the tradition had changed by that point. The late Hellenistic traditions that the nodes became more important and more prominent than they were earlier, which is often an issue that we have with Rhetorius. Um, But the two main trends that I've identified in terms of interpretations in the Hellenistic traditions when they are mentioned is one notion of the nodes being ominous and unsettling or disruptive due to being associated with eclipses. And I suspect with this notion of there being like this interruption in nature because it suddenly when the Moon eclipses the Sun, it becomes dark out in the middle of the day, which seems like something that's almost outside of the natural order. Um, So there's that part of the sort of negative tradition of the nodes. And then there's a secondary tradition that shows up by the time of Rhetorius at least of the north node having to do with increasing things and the south node having to do with decreasing things because the nodes represent the point where the Moon's latitude begins increasing and going upwards or decreasing and going downwards. Um, and then this leads to the later medieval tradition of a, of saying that the North Node is good with the benefics because it increases them and it's bad with the malefics because it increases their t- natural tendency towards maleficence. And the South Node is um, good with the malefics because it decreases their natural tendency towards maleficence and it's bad with the b- benefics because it decreases their natural tendency towards beneficence and that then becomes some of the primary keywords for the nodes throughout the rest of the um, medieval astrological tradition in the West mm-hmm. So and the same it,
1: thing happened go ahead sorry.
0: So it's just interesting though that the nodes aren't mentioned very frequently in the early Hellenistic tradition and so it sort of makes sense that in parallel in the early Indian tradition the nodes similarly, as you're saying, are not mentioned very frequently in those three early texts from like the second century CE through the 6th century sixth century CE.
1: But they're mentioned a lot in um, texts that have to do with the um, what's called Grahashanti, which are uh, planetary rites or appeasement um, ceremonies. Um, and then once the temples started being built uh, in, uh, let's say, fourth century, fifth century. All of the visual images of the nodes started to be um, produced on the lintels in the temples.
0: Is it the nodes for sure, though, that are being associated with Rahu and Ketu at that point? Or is it Rahu and Ketu as separate deities that are being propitiated that don't necessarily have anything to do with the nodes yet? They're
1: separate. Rahu does. So Rahu is considered to be the uh, eclipse former. But Ketu is just considered to be a comet or smoke. Ketu has nothing to do with it. It's really Rahu. So you get this whole idea of the, um, Rahu forming the eclipse. Later on, later on, people will then add Ketu to that tradition and they'll say, Oh, it's Rahu and Ketu swallowing up the sun and the moon. But initially it's only Rahu and he's the demon whose head gets decapitated and he then has two bodies. But when you're dealing with Ketu um, in the early tradition of Indian astrology, Ketu is not in horoscopic astrology, neither is Rahu. But they do get written about, and then they have um first, Rahu becomes um, anthropomorphic, and he is seated with the seven other uh, planets, in uh, lintels, in temples, you know, in sculptures. Um, and then um, towards the end of the 6th century, Ketu starts to get added to it. But Varamahira, who wrote Briyat which is the considered to be one of the classics in Indian astrology and in natal astrology, also wrote what's called Briyat Samhita, which is the compendium. Um, Samhita is a compendium. And in that, he talks a lot. In nine chapters, he talks about the transits of these planets and what they're doing. And in the chapter on Rahu, um, he talks a lot about eclipses um, and what eclipses do when they're in uh, each nakshatra, when they're in the signs, how it works for the different areas of India. And at the same time, because he was also a mathematician and astronomer, and a religious person, and this was always the conflict, he talks in this chapter about you know, the fact that people say that Rahu caused eclipses, but we all know that's not really true, and he sets forth the mathematics of eclipses. But then he also says, but we have to propitiate Rahu, we have to still honor um, you know, honor him and propitiate him so he doesn't, you know, damage us. So that is very much part of the tradition. And then in the chapter on Ketu, it's all about comets because Ketu is a comet. So it's all about the fact that um, there are hundreds of comets, some people say thousands of comets. And it, comets can refer really to meteors, to anything in the sky that is not a planet. So that's kind of like the, the whole idea of the formlessness. So the Ketu and Rahu were very much part of the tradition and were, you know, drawn and and, and the images were set forth. Um, and Rahu, if you if you look at images you have in Yavana Jataka, for instance, there's in the very beginning, Pingri put in um, a, a picture on the first page of a lintel in a temple, and it's the eight grahas. And if you look at that, in fact, that is in uh, Worcester in Massachusetts in the Art Museum, um, and it has the the seven planets plus Rahu. And what you'll notice there is that Rahu has this huge head. So all the planets are kind of looking the same. And then at the very end, Rahu is is pictured with this humongous head. And, and that's kind of how he always became uh, portrayed. He had this huge head. And then later on when they added Ketu – they kind of added this. Um, the, the bottom of Ketu uh, was um, like serpentine. That was the um, the imagery of the um, of the eclipse. That it was serpentine. Um, it was like uh, how it looked. But you didn't get the the astrology of the eclipses, and um, I mean of the nodes. In fact, what you're saying in terms of how Rhetorius um, described them—that's very much how they were described in texts that started to appear. Um, I would think seventh, eighth century, when you had Parashara. Uh, Parashara's okay. text was the first one um, that really had the nodes mentioned in it. Um, okay. as as planets in houses and planets with, you know, um signs, and also with the dashas, you know, because the early dashas um didn't have um Rahu in it or Ketu. That wasn't Vimshotri. Vimshotri is only one Dasha system. Um, that didn't appear until until you could until you could bring the nodes into your astrology. You couldn't have Vimshottari Dasha because Vimshottari Dasha is based on nine planetary periods, and before that, you had Dasha periods. You know, like you have you know the the, the planetary lords and you know in Hellenistic astrology, but you didn't have Rahu and Ketu in it. You had the five planets, and then you had an ascendant Dasha. Also, you had okay. eight
0: rushes. So prashara is the point where the nodes get firmly integrated into the Indian tradition, and they at that point sort of get elevated almost to the level of of planets or as grahas, where you have the seven traditional visible planetary bodies, and then you have Rahu, the north node, and Ketu, the south node.
1: Right. And the thing is with prashara, and I know this prashara is always such a controversial topic.
0: Yeah, because, what's the dating on Prasha? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a, the controversy. The can, <laughs> can of worms. Okay.
1: Well, the the controversy really is that. Um,
0: when did Pingree date the Prasha, Let's just say.
1: Well, in in his book Jyotishastra, um, Pingree dated it till about. He had first the first and second. They were in two parts. One he said was probably between six and seven six hundred and seven fifty and then mm-hmm. he thought the other section was uh, by about 800. The, the reason it's controversial is if you look at Pingree's text, um, you will see that um, he describes the chapters. He tells you all the chapters of the manuscript that he has of um, Parashra. But if you look at the modern-day um, texts of Parashra, um there are like 20 more chapters in it. Mm-hmm. So okay. over the years, the chapters have been added to. So we don't always know which ones, you know, kind of came in what era. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of people talk about Prashara as one of their teachers, so he would have been prior to the 6th century. So it might not even be the same person. Again, it could be the lineage. Um, So you see the name repeated. So it's not necessarily that the person who produced these texts in the seventh century was the same Parashara that the um, Varamahira and other Indian astrologers mentioned as mm. having, you know, produced material. So a lot of it is orally transmitted. So the point is, is that there is this text, um, six yeah, about seventh, eighth century, six hundred to seven fifty, and the nodes are mentioned in there,
0: and part and of the
1: issue with, also,
0: which part has, of the issue with Parashara is that um, it's presented. Like some of the Hellenistic texts were where they're presented as like revealed wisdom to like a king or a sage or something like that from the gods. And Prasha is kind of presented in that way as well, isn't
1: it? he's presents as a teacher. Yeah. But but they don't know exactly um if because they're talking about Prasha as a teacher, but the text doesn't appear till much later. So does it mean that all this knowledge that's in the text was actually revealed, but never written down. We don't really know. It doesn't seem likely. It doesn't seem likely because all of the astrologers prior, you know, to the seventh century were not using Rahu Ketu in their in their horoscopic texts. Right. So it doesn't seem likely that you had Rahu Ketu mentioned prior to that. You know, so that's why I think that the dating. Of at least the text that has the Rahu Ketu and it was probably, as Pingri says, be somewhere between 600 and 750 um, yeah, CE. Yeah, I, I guess I was
0: just mentioning that because sometimes people take the figure of Parashura literally and say this is a sage that lived like 10,000 BCE exactly. or something like that instead of somebody like Pingri is looking at this as this is a text a that person. was written, a real person that wrote this text sometime around the 8th century. So Okay, so Prasha is when the nodes get fully integrated in Indian astrology. It's in there's delineations. It's also in the Vimshottari Dasha system, which is I think the nodes are actually given time Lord or Dasha periods that last for how many is it how how long is a general period of like Rahu or Ketu?
1: Well, the Rahu period lasts eighteen years. Um and of course that's interesting because you get the sorrow cycle of eclipses that are eighteen years. Um, And you get the nodes going through the um, zodiac in about 18.6 years. Um, So that's kind of an interesting number. And then the Ketu Dasha is seven years. Um, That one's more quick, you know, because that's how Ketu started to become um, defined um, in that way. Um, In in later texts, um, the other interesting thing, you know, for those who really are following all this Indian astrology dating... Um, another important text it's called saravali and that was supposedly about 800 ce some people think it's a little earlier 8th century <clears throat> there's no mention of rahu ketu in there either so that becomes funny um but then later on as i was saying to you when when um, the text that i learned from paladipaka that was probably around 13 14th century and then you get the um persian arabic influence there
0: a okay lot. let's pause on that one just because I want to do a whole separate digression about the Persian influence and the dragon thing. Right? Where in Parashara are you comfortable talking about any things that we know from Parashara, at least as far as we know with the text that we have about how it talks about the nodes or what significations it gives or anything along those lines in terms of how it's conceptualizing them or what meanings it's applying to them?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the nodes are always you know, last. I mean, and they're not so before Parashra. I mean, the, the nodes are all the planets have different meanings. You know, there are seven planets. They rule the seven senses. They rule um, that not seven senses. Sorry, they rule um, uh, the five planets. Rule the, the five senses. Um, and then you get different uh, different people in the cabinet. You know, like the king, the queen, the prince. Um, there, you get the seven planets. And then when you add the Rahu Ketu, they usually come at the end, and they're always talked about in terms of darkness. Um, And the the idea of Ketu as the comet, the formlessness, um, you know, is sort of, uh, you know, in a similar way. They're very malefic, Rahu and Ketu. Um, Most of the time, they are not considered to do any good except if they are affiliated with good planets or good house rulerships, um, then they can form actually very positive yogas. But the um, the idea that they are for the first time looked at in terms of the um the dashas um, is a very important thing. Now when you're talking about time Lords, for instance, you don't have the do you have the nodes in in that whole system or it's or it's not included
0: um. The nodes, do the nodes play a role in the Time Lord systems? They might be mentioned like offhand possibly as what in terms of what happens if a node gets hit in like primary directions or something like that. But for the most part, no, I don't think the nodes are used in any core role in any of the Time Lord systems that I know of until you get to the medieval period after the nodes get integrated through the Persian tradition. I keep Mm -hmm. I keep thinking that the Persian tradition is the source of where the nodes become really important, mm-hmm. and we'll get into that maybe in a second once we mm-hmm. finish talking a little bit more about Parashara.
1: Yeah, Parashara is a text. You know, I mean, it's funny. I kind of keep away from it a lot because of so much, because of all the confusion um, that comes with it. But the important thing with Parashara is the fact that it does occur. It does. It does formulate the um, the doshas. Um, the the nodes are considered to be dark. Um, they're not necessarily considered to be, um, like I said, benefic, uh, benefic forces. Um, you know, they rule right. things like underground and and all the nasty things. You know that you have. Um,
0: that you know, seems like in, a common in theme in Indian astrology is that the nodes are treated as um, difficult and somewhat chaotic or um, unstable type factors to some extent. Would you say that's true in a general sense?
1: Yes, for sure. And they're always considered to be at the very, very end, you know, when you're talking about them. So um, in in, in Prasha, for instance, you talk about the planets, um, you do it according to, you know, like the days of the week, sun, moon, Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, Saturn, then you get Rahu Ketu at the end because they were added on. Um, and then when you talk about the malefics, um, Prasha says the sun, Saturn, Mars, the waning moon, they're, they're all malefics. Um, and then Rahu Ketu, they also become uh, malefics. So okay, so
0: so Rahu and Ketu are grouped together with the malefics and Prashra. Yeah,
1: always, yeah. So that's mm-hmm. that's
0: important. I mean, that's important to know in terms of how they're conceptualizing the nodes and their function in, in a chart.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they rule outcasts, you know, and foreign. Like in modern day, uh, when you're looking at a chart in modern day um, horoscopy. They take it a lot from the whole idea of Rahu Ketu um, ruling outcasts. So they say that Rahu and Ketu can rule foreigners. Um, It can rule Bohemian, you know, quote Bohemians, you know, people that rebel. um, Anybody who is different, you know. So that's kind of like what Rahu Ketu was, um, you know, conceptualized as. And again, that has to do with that myth because Rahu Ketu are not planets. You know, they they're not they're not things, you know, they're, they don't have mass, they don't have shape, you know, they're points, you know, they're where the, you know, the, the path of the moon and, you know, meets the ecliptic. So they, they, you can't hold on to them. You know, they're considered to be shadows because they are appearing um, in a way that you can't put your finger on. So that's a lot of the way that they do get um, interpreted um, in, in these texts, you know, because, because, you, because they're not real. You know what I mean? They don't. They don't have um, the kind of material, um, material qualifications or qualities. You know that the planets do or stars do.
0: You know, so yeah, maybe we should backtrack a little way. bit, which you touched on a little, but um, just describing the nodes and the astronomy a little bit. So the the nodes are um, the point on the ecliptic where the path of the moon crosses the path of the sun. Yeah. And that's basically it. And the mm-hmm. north node is when the moon um, passes the path of the sun and m- begins moving upwards or, or north, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the south node is when the moon passes the path of the sun, which is the ecliptic or the zodiac, and begins moving downwards or mm-hmm. south, basically, mm-hmm. right?
1: Mm-hmm. Is, that, mm-hmm. is that correct? Yeah. 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 Exactly. So
0: as a result of that, um, the nodes because they represent the intersection or the crossing over point between the path of the Sun and the path of the Moon, when you get a new Moon in the zodiac or a full Moon which occurs close to the nodes, you always know that an eclipse is going to take place close to that point because when the lunations occur close to the nodes, that's when the Moon will obscure the sun and basically mm-hmm. move move across the face of it or at least yeah. it has the potential to
1: right yeah so when you when you look at a chart when you see that those nodes are very close to the sun and the moon you know there's an eclipse rather than just a normal lunation you know and they they occur every 6 months um and and that's also why the um the whole idea of of rahu became this feared you know this demon that they considered um rahu to be to be a demon because they knew that when eclipses came, things went dark, you know, and you know, suddenly and of course the myths surrounding eclipses that eclipses meant the death of a king or announced the birth of a king, um, they were always used to um to have some major event happen along with it. And, you know, in a way that's how we use it in modern times, you know, if we're using it astrologically. But right. um
0: um, yeah. And so so let's see, eclipses. And sometimes in the, in the Greek text, the Hellenistic astrologers actually refer to the nodes as the eclipsing places mm-hmm. um, as a result of that. And this may be—I mean, some of the interesting parallels between the Hellenistic tradition or at least some pieces of the Hellenistic tradition and the Indian tradition where the nodes are treated more negatively is um, Valens. There's this one famous chapter in Valens where he talks about Um, Inceptional Astrology, and he talks about not putting the nodes, the Moon close to the nodes or the Moon making a hard aspect to the nodes, especially a close one by degree like a conjunction, square, or opposition. Mm -hmm. Um, And he goes on this very long and uncharacteristically pessimistic rant about the nodes, evidently based on his personal experience where he says, and this is in the 2nd century, he says, beware of starting anything, do not sail, do not marry, do not have meetings, do not begin anything, do not plant, do not introduce, in short, do not do anything. Mm -hmm. What has been started will be judged insecure or prone to come to a bad end, Mm -hmm. and it will be something regrettable, incomplete, subject to penalties, grievous, and not lasting." Um, if someone seems to have begun the development of some business in these days, the business will go bankrupt, will be troublesome, subject to penalties, easily ruined, and a stumbling block. Not even benefics, which happen to be in these places, do anything entirely good. Therefore, even without consulting a natal chart, if anyone guards against the current transits of the moon through the ascending node, he will not make a mistake. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things, is like there's, the, like I said, these two traditions in the Hellenistic tradition and one of them is just is a very pessimistic take on the nodes, especially when associated with the luminaries, I think because those are the eclipsing places where the the lights get sort of extinguished, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and they treat them as very unstable. And that tradition almost reminds me more of what you end up seeing eventually in the Vedic tradition, which also seems to treat them as more negative or problematic in some way.
1: Yeah, I think what you're what you're also reading from has to do with the timing of the fact that the nodes were in fact used um uh, for uh, in terms of omens and in terms of um looking at eclipses as negative, you know, negative forces because that's really when they when they saw the nodes, you know, kind of come to fruition when you had the eclipses. And way before, I mean, in the second century, there were texts that had no, you know, that had the nodes mentioned. So the the whole idea of, um, you know, electional astrology or just general astrology that is not horoscopic. Um, <clears throat> that, that those are the two kind of threads that are very um, distinct also in the Indian tradition that they were used in the same way you're reading Valens. Um, and there are a lot of texts that are being translated now. Um, Garga Samhita is being translated. This is a text from the second century that that Bill Mock and a few people are putting together. But these are texts that are dealing with omens and are dealing with taking trips and planning events. And that was also um, one of the reasons why, you know, they had to, <clears throat> you know, honor the deities and appease the deities as well, so that they could, you know, do things and, and, you know, have the blessings, you know, of the planets. And so that was always the same. It was, it seems like it's the same tradition in, um, in Hellenistic that it took a while for it to get into, um, the horoscope, you know, as well. Because you know, you always knew that the nodes were there. And f- in terms of Ketu being the comet, you know, or meteors, or something formless, I'm not sure how that works in terms of Hel- the Hellenistic tradition. But that was, you know, the definite tradition in, in, in India because that's okay. that's what it was all about.
0: Um, all right. So, is there anything else we need to mention about the nodes or getting into the meaning of the nodes in texts like Parashra that we can say more securely. Where does the tradition of associating them almost with being like Saturn-like or Mars-like come from? Um,
1: you know, I don't know if it's in parashara per se, um, but I do know in the text that that I learned from, as I showed you, it's very clearly written that Saturn, uh, that Rahu acts like Saturn, um, and Ketu acts like Mars, um, and I'm assuming it's somewhere. Purusha Prash- is so big, you know that I. I don't know every little thing that's in there I haven't read every little thing of Parashara I apologize but in the text of Palladepika which specifically says in there that he learned from Bria Parashara Horashastra, so you know it's that tradition um they say specifically that the uh, that Rahu acts like Saturn um because also it's it's slow and it's dark you know and and Saturn was given to delays and obstruction, so Rahu is very much like Saturn. And in the Vimshotri Dasha system, you know, Saturn is 19 years and Rahu is 18 years. Um, And then Ketu is like Mars, and they are both um, in the Vimshotri Dasha system seven years. So they do have that similarity, and also because um, it, it, originally it was like a comet, you know, it was like, Mars, you know, like things just exploding, you know, if you think of the whole, imagery of Mars as this, you know, explosion uh, oriented planet. So um, so it is very clear that that's one of the uh, affiliations that you get. and um, and later on, when you are doing, you know um, interpretation, um, I find it it helps a lot to look at Ketu like Mars and Saturn like uh, and Rahu like Saturn that's a whole other story but um but yeah i mean it's 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 quite clear that that's one of the um one of the things that they um affiliated it with um and then others you know other things of course that like i said the saturn uh rahu and ketu had to do with out being an outcast you know they were like the the outcasts um of the of the planetary pantheon you know they were you know on the very end of the scale so to speak. um
0: and you sent me some delineations from faladipika can I, which is dated somewhere from the 13th to the 16th century, is it okay if I share some of these on the screen?
1: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah okay, sure. so
0: this is a little bit later, but this gives you an idea of where. And you said this is maybe an outgrowth or sort of later development of where the Prashra tradition started going. Um. So yeah,
1: he says specifically that that is that that he was one of the texts you know that they learned that
0: he learned from. Okay, so this is from chapter 8. It says, Sloka 25, if at birth Rahu occupies the lagna, which is the, the rising Ascendant. sign, mm-hmm. um, the person concerned will have a short life, possess wealth and strength, and will suffer <laughs> frog diseases in the higher limbs of his body. So that's a little mixed Weird. short life, so it's like something that's depriving life, but then it says possesses wealth and strength but then it'll be diseased in his body, which is like mm-hmm. a first house type signification. Um, then it goes on, it says, the person who is at his birth, Rahu, in his second house will be dubious or insincere in his speech, uh, Will since speech is one of the significations associated with the second, second house, house in Indian astrology, mm-hmm. will suffer from disease in the mouth or face, will be tender hearted. will get wealth through his sovereign, and will be wrathful and happy. Um, all right. so Rahu, are, R- yeah, go ahead.
1: No, I'm saying that they all get very mixed up a lot of these um when you read all these texts. You know, they'll throw in um, like positive um, some, and negative, yeah, some in some of the houses and and things like that. but but here they start the tradition of Rahu in the third house um being strong. um and Rahu in the sixth house is supposed to be strong, third, six, ten, and eleven. By tradition are supposed to be the places where Rahu is strong. And they don't delineate them in terms of sign. They delineate them in terms of the houses, um, which
0: is another right. interesting thing. So you um, said this was tied in with the tradition of which houses the benefics and malefics do well in?
1: Yeah. Yeah. What's yeah. what is that again? Can Third, sixth, tenth, and eleventh. Um, are considered to be the houses of what's called upachaya houses or growth houses. But they are the houses, um, and some people take them, you know, the third and sixth as being very, you know, bad. The sixth house is also what's called a dastana house, so it has a dual meaning. The tenth house is also what's called a kendra house, an angular house. So it also has a strong an, a, another meaning, but the third, sixth, tenth, and eleventh are usually where you want malefic planets to be. So if they have in these, and 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 what it does also is if you see it in the third house, it will give you a um, you know something strong. Um, if you see it in the sixth house, um, it's going to give you something strong, but it's also going to give you something that you have to fight for because the sixth is the house of illness. So because it's the house of illness. Um, in order to overcome something, you have to have something bad to overcome. You know, so if you have the nodes or a malefic Mars, Saturn, or the Sun, even is considered a malefic. Um, in a house like the sixth house, you are going to be able to overcome things, but you have to have something to overcome to begin with. So it it gets it it gets mixed, but it there's a, there's a logic to it you know there's a there's a strange logic to it um but even even in this tradition rahu ketu can't always um fill the same shoes so to speak as the um as the planets because the planets have relationships like friendships and enemies rahu ketu doesn't fit into that category so uh you know and a lot of the dasha systems are not all based um, are on having the nodes in them. I mean, Vimshotri is only one system. It's not the be all and end all. A lot of people don't, you know, use, use other systems too. Um, so you won't get Rahu Ketu in a lot of those systems. Um, in some, you get Rahu and not Ketu um, because Ketu is considered to be, you know, it's like smoke. But later on, when you talk about Rahu Ketu being the head and the tail, or in India, just at the top and the bottom you know, Rahu is this head or the the top of the body, but Ketu is the bottom. So because Ketu has no eyes and doesn't see and doesn't think, you know, logically, um, they take it out of the running when it comes to aspects and transits. Um, Ketu is not mentioned in transits, uh, but Rahu is. So they, they are still, even though they're using Ketu, um, they're still looking at it as you know, kind of not having equality with the rest of the of the planets. um so so it's an interesting kind of concept that that Ketu is really, you know, something that you can't define or you know that that sort of scares you um, much more than Rahu in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that's also where it all came from about, you know, your your past life is there, and so you have to, you know, work out whatever Ketu didn't allow you to work out, you know, that kind of thing that that happened with the uh, south node in in modern-day, um, you know, modern-day uh, delineations. Um, so it, it is interesting, you know, because the transits are, are used. I mean, people make a mistake also to think that only Dashes are used in uh, predictive work, but the, the transits are very important. Um, in in Indian work, you know, very important.
0: So, but the general thing though was that there's certain houses that the malefics were said to do better in in mm-hmm. general, and there's certain houses that the benefics were thought to do better in. And generally speaking, the nodes started being assigned because they were malefics to also do being doing better in certain houses. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: okay. exactly. Okay, so yeah. let's go back to the delineation here. Rahu in the third house makes the person born proud, hostile to his brothers, strong-willed, long-lived, and wealthy. So that's interesting. Hostile to his brothers as a third house signification. Um, if Rahu should occupy the fourth house, the person born will be a fool, will cause sorrow, will be short-lived, and will be rarely happy. So again, we're seeing kind of a continuation where it is treating it more malefically, at least mm-hmm. more consistently than Not. Um, So let's see. Sloka 26. If at a person's birth, Rahu should be posited in the fifth house, he will have nasal touch in his speech, will be childless, he will be hard hearted, and suffer from stomach ache. So, fifth house is the house of one of the houses of children, and and being childless if you have Rahu there. So, that's obviously more of a negative delineation. If Rahu is in the sixth house, the person will be born. The person will be troubled by his enemies or oppressed by evil planets. He will suffer from an ulcer in his anus. He will be wealthy and long-lived. So it's giving um, negative delineations for both of the traditional topic of enemies in the 6th house as well as um, some sort of negative delineation for health matters as well. But then something positive coming right. from wealth and longevity
1: <laughs> right. So you start out with these horrible things, but you have the willpower to kind of conquer them. Mm. I mean, these are all, you know, I mean, I mean, like like any classically written text, I mean they're all very um, you know, kind of short, you know they they really en- encompass a lot of different things. and there's also different, Um, different translations as well. I mean, I took this one translation. It's very possible if I read through it, I would translate it a lot differently. But um, But, uh, but yeah, I'm just trying to get a sense of it
0: though, really quickly.
1: You find that Rahu Ketu, even if you go into India and you mention Rahu Ketu, people get, you know, People who years ago would just get very nervous, you know, if you talk about them. And and even the temples, you know, dedicated to Rahu Ketu, it's not like just freely you go in there and you worship. So they are really still considered to be, um, you know, these demonic forces that um, – and especially because Rahu was the demon in the early – uh, tradition of the eclipses—it doesn't go away, you know. That whole idea of, you know, oh, don't talk about Rahu Ketu, you know.
0: Yeah, and I mean, from what I understand, like the Rahu and Ketu periods are not traditionally considered to be like great Dasha periods to go into necessarily, or or very fun ones.
1: Well, you know, it again, everything then starts to get translated differently, you know, as the years go by and you go into modern times. <clears throat> so, you know. Rahu is 18 years. So you're not going to say, oh, the whole 18 years is bad. And if you have, let's say, Rahu in your third, sixth, tenth, or eleventh, or let's say Rahu is with a benefic, the dasha period could be good because you're taking on the qualities, you know, of the benefics, or you're taking on the quality of the lordship of a good house. Um, <clears throat> and because Rahu is like Saturn, you know sometimes it's just slow and drawn out but you know rahu is extraordinarily extreme i mean that's the thing with the nodes is that they they became noted for their the extremities um so you can go from high to low um you can you can be very compulsive you know that rahu can be very compulsive again the symbolism of the head you know that doesn't digest it keeps eating and and taking in things but it it doesn't have a digestive system so <clears throat> with Rahu, you have to know when your boundaries are. So in modern in modern kind of astrology or, you know, counseling, you know, you try to tell people to to try to set those boundaries because otherwise you can get swept away, you know, in terms of the, you know, addictive quality. Ketu is seven years like Mars. It's quick. It's quick. You can go from high to low or low to high. I mean, I've seen people in Ketu Dasha have things just com- completely wiped out, and I've seen people go from low to high. You know, um, that's. I mean, I, I lecture on that all the time with amazing examples. You know, and and I think that that's something that you know, as you go on through life and are in modern times, and you have more f- choices. You know, it's not like living in a little village with your astrologer who sets your life path for you. So it's a very different. You know, you you know you you use Hellenistic astrology, so you know yourself that when you're dealing with modern modern times, you have to take these um, these you know translations and you know sort of extend it or modernize yeah. them. You know. Yeah, I mean the extent.
0: ancient texts usually frame things in terms of extreme either worst or best case scenario and mm-hmm. it's you're supposed to understand that there's many different mitigating conditions that you can take into account to modify or produce the actual delineation but it's trying to convey some sort of underlying principle to you right um so here's a little for those unfamiliar with it uh, from solar fire just a chart of today approximately when we started and this is like one of the traditional <laughs> south indian square charts and over on the right it has the Shudri dashas and Bhuktis, and it just shows you some of the periods that we're talking about. Where there's like a a Mars general period that lasts for seven years, and then there's a Rahu period that lasts for eight eight years, and a Ketu period that lasts for seven years, as you were saying.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah.
0: back yeah. to the delineation. But if you go to
1: Parashara or Palladipika, the text I use, I mean, they will give you you know, really, especially Pala tells you about the dashas, you know, what to expect in Rahu dasha, what to expect in, you know, Ketu dasha, what to expect in Moon dasha, and then what to expect in all the sub-periods, you know, of the dashas. So they're pretty clear, but then you have to take that as a general rule, and you always have to look at what everything is doing in the natal chart, you know, in order to really... Um, come to a conclusion about what the general, uh, dasha is or general transit. So that's kind of the thing is that because Rahu and Ketu are, I think they're like intensifiers, you know, everything they come in contact with gets just intensified. Um, you know, Rahu with Jupiter can, can give somebody who has enormous wealth. You know, um an enormous greed at the same time, you know, so it's it it kind of works like that um okay. you know in a lot of respect,
0: uh, so back to Fala Deepika, so I just want to briefly mention some of the other delineations to just give people an idea of where the Indian traditions start going with this. so it says when Rahu's in the seventh house, the person will the person will lose his wealth through intrigues with women, so basically like problems with relationships um. If Rahu occupies the tenth house, the person will be short lived. um, Will do impure acts and other issues. If Rahu happens to be in the ninth house, the person will be unfavorable in speech. He will be head of his clan, the headmaster of a village, or mayor of a city, and will commit unrighteous deeds. Is that notion of like unrighteousness as a result of like um, religious associations with the ninth house?
1: Yeah, the house of righteousness and dharma. House of righteousness, dharma. Okay.
0: Rahu in the 10th makes the native famous the man will have a limited number of issues, issues will engage titles. himself in others business will not do any good act and will be fearless that's, that's Donald
1: funny. Trump has rahu in the 10th okay so, that's funny <laughs> so you see how that works
0: okay um if rahu will be in the 11th house the person born will be prosperous will not have many children will be long lived and will suffer from ear disease so this is interesting because one- ears this is one of those positive delineations and you said the 11th was one of those those houses you were talking about that was in a in improving or like an upachaya upachaya house upachaya mhm so, so it, the it thing has-
1: is, yeah the thing is is that even with the good things that rahu gives there's always a catch to it i mean it's not going to give you like jupiter you know what i mean it's not going to be all good you know there's always mm. going to be a little catch to it so of course you're going to find okay you live a long life you do this but you're going to have ear trouble you know it's not going to be perfect you know so that's that's very much wa- how they look at these malefics you know mm-hmm. you have to you you know you're not getting off scot free you know well, <laughs> there's yeah, always so a says, price to pay for everything
0: so it says you'll be prosperous um but will not have many children so and is is the 11th one of the places of children in indian astrology fifth-
1: the 5th is the 5th is the house of children so if okay. you have rahu in the 11th you have ketu in the 5th but ketu also because in indian astrology the planets aspect the opposite house or the mm. opposite sign so okay. um and in, and of course in the that tradition if you don't have any children it's not considered a good thing you know because the progeny in your family is very very important you know
0: passing right on. So Rahu and Ketu don't have special aspects like the three of the other planets do, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, but they do not just affect the house that they're in, but also the house they're opposite to?
1: Yeah. Well, Rahu is also given—again, there's different traditions. Some people look at Rahu as aspecting five and nine places from it, so it's got the same special aspect as Jupiter has. Um, And then I, I have known some people to take Ketu, but I was taught that Ketu cannot aspect because Ketu cannot see. And the word for aspect in in Indian um in Sanskrit is Drishti, which means to see or to know. That's the whole idea of an aspect that you're seeing. you're seeing another planet. You know you're bringing that other energy into your life. I think in in any ancient tradition, that's how they saw aspects. So if you have the um so if you have Ketu or the South Node, They can't see because they don't have any, you know, they don't have a head, they don't have eyes. So, yeah, that's
0: kind of how it works. Um, So, let's see, going back, um, Rahu in the 12th house, the person concerned will be intent on committing sinful acts secretly, will spend much, much, and will suffer from dropsy and the like. Um, So, is the 12th treated as like a house of of secrecy in Indian astrology?
1: Yeah, secret enemies, secrecy. Yeah, all that. Same thing.
0: So then it goes on and it starts doing delineations of Ketu, the south node. It says those born with Ketu in the rising sign will be ungrateful, unhappy, and bearing tales against others. He will be an outcast fallen from his position and will have a deformed body and will be associated with the wicked. Um, Ketu in the second makes the native devoid of learning and riches so negative delineation for the second house, his speech will be very vile in quality and he will have a sinister look. He will ever be eating at others' tables. So that's almost like an entirely negative and much more negative delineation of um, South node in the second house, almost than it was for North node in the second house. I think, right?
1: Right, but the second house is, like I said, the the second house is also not supposed to be necessarily a great house for the for the nodes. For the nodes, as okay. in the third. And if you go down now to the third house, mm-hmm. you know, um, it says good things, but at the end it says, oh, but he will lose a brother. You <laughs> know, so it's okay. They're all good, Sorry. but there's something you know bad as well.
0: So, so it says Ketu in the third house confers on the native long life, strength, wealth, and fame. The person will live happily, and his wife will eat good food. He will lose a brother. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Um, let's see. And Ketu, Ketu is and- like
1: loss a lot of times because Rahu is also Rahu is you know sort of like this voracious, greedy um, head or top of the body. So the the Rahu is acquiring things. Um, whereas Ketu is losing things, you know, because, again, uh, the bottom half of the body is where the waste material goes. So it it wastes, it loses, um, and like Mars, it obliterates. Um, so a lot of times these um, definitions will have loss, you know. Uh, fourth house, he will leave his native country, you know, things like that. So oh. if you take that Ketu as, as having to do with something getting cut off, you know, or loss or separation. Um, a lot of those uh, definitions, you know, will hold through. And you know the thing is is that it's the same with the um, with the dashas that you know, again, if it's associated um, you know with a good planet or it's in a good house, even the difficult um, you know, dasha periods will not be so bad, you know, in it. So you always have to judge the um, the placement of the planets. In terms of the other planets that they're associated with. So that becomes very important um, you know in terms of how you acquire um, how you acquire meaning or how you acquire your definition, you know from the right. other the others that you're you know friendly with or affiliated with in, in that sense.
0: right. All right, so um, the text says, Ketu in the 4th house, the person concerned will lose lands, vehicles, mother, and happiness. He will leave his native country and dwell in a foreign place and live at the border of another. Um, Ketu in the 5th house at a person's birth will cause loss of children, disease in the stomach, and trouble from goblins. The native will become evil-minded and wicked. Uh, Ketu in the 6th house, the person concerned will be very magnanimous and possess the best qualities he will obtain yes. everlasting fame, firmness, and high authority, destroy his enemies, and realize his wishes. That's again, a very positive explanation. House. Yeah, again,
1: that's third, sixth, that's ten, yeah, the sixth house is the, again,
0: you it. know, the house of.
1: Con- is it like that also in Hellenistic, that the malefics in the sixth house, for instance, that's a house of enemies, does it work well? Do they work well as they do in Indian tradition?
0: Um, it's kind of mixed. It depends mm-hmm. on like the malefics. Theoretically, sometimes in like Paulus in the 4th century, if they're in a good sign and if they're of the sect in favor, if it's like Saturn in a day chart in the 12th house or Mars mm-hmm. in, a, in a night chart in the 6th house and it's otherwise well-positioned, then they can be said to give good indications in those placements, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just because those are the planetary joys of the malefics. hmm It works
1: kind of similar.
0: Okay. Um, let's see. Sixth house, seventh house. The person at birth who has Ketu posited in the seventh will suffer disrespect, seek the company of bad women, will be afflicted by a disease relating to the bowels, and will suffer loss of wife and vital power. So, definitely more sense of like loss with Ketu, like you were saying, <laughs> right. or letting go of something. Mm hmm. Um, if Ketu is in the eighth house, the person born will be short-lived. Will suffer the separation of his dear friends, engage in quarrels, will meet with injury from a weapon, and disappointment in all his undertakings. So the eighth, the very first delineation was short-lived because the eighth in Indian astrology has to do Life. with like long, long longevity, longevity. Mm-hmm. longevity. Okay. Yeah. Um, if Ketu occupies the ninth house you'll follow a sinful course will' do unrighteous things and will be deprived of his father will be unlike unlucky indignant and will slander the good um, yeah the
1: father in, in in Indian tradition the ninth house is the father so that's why it's, it says that
0: okay that makes sense in some traditions of Hellenistic astrology the ninth is the father as well because mm-hmm. the son has its joy there. Mm-hmm. Um, all right tenth house. Ketu, the person born will experience obstacles to the performance of good acts, will actually, be that means- impure and will be engaged in doing vile acts. He will be energetic, bold, and widely renowned.
1: <laughs> yeah, sounds that's like, what I'm saying. Yeah.
0: Because the tenth in um, Hellenistic astrology, the tenth is the air, the house of Proxus, which means action. Mm-hmm. And something that Schmidt always pointed out that he liked was that action or proxis in Greek is actually a pretty close analogy to the word I think that gets associated with the 10th house, which is karma, which is like also like action or the result Mm -hmm. of past action, right?
1: Right. Well, the word karma, I mean, if you just take the word per se and look it up in a dictionary, it means action. Exactly. It's movement, you know, it's what you're making of things. So that's exactly what happens when you're dealing with karma, you know, it's what you're making, it's the actions that you took in a previous life that will define the actions that you need to take in this life. So Mm -hmm. yeah, the 10th house is, yeah, it's come to mean status, profession, you know all of that but yeah it's definitely that what you're doing in the world the actions that you're taking
0: for sure okay so that's why the the delineation that it produces here with ketu in the 10th is the person born will experience obstacles to the performance of good acts yeah and will be engaged in doing vile acts basically or bad <laughs> acts so that's interesting um ketu in the 11th the person will be will hoard money Will have many good qualities. Will enjoy himself well. Will command all the facilities for getting good materials, and will be successful in obtaining all his requirements.
1: Yeah. Then it's again, like, that's you know that's also a matter of translation. Here it says hoard money, but actually it 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 can mean that you're very good with money. You know that you're investing it wisely, and you're not being you know uh, a spendthrift. Let's say.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. Okay. And then finally Ketu in the twelfth the person born will secretly commit sinful acts, spend money on vile things will destroy wealth will be forbid of forbidden conduct and will suffer from eye disease
1: yeah because it rules the eyes
0: got it okay. um anything okay, I think that's good yeah so that gives us some idea of where the Indian tradition started to take things in terms of the interpretation of the nodes we should talk about because this inter this ended up affecting both the Indian tradition, as well as the Western medieval tradition, where at some point, um, running parallel to the later um, Hellenistic tradition, or or just after the Hellenistic tradition, there was um, a, a several century tradition of astrology in Persia um, from like the third century through the sixth or seventh century, and it seems like it was from that tradition that. They started associating the nodes with drag with a dragon, and they associated the north node with the head of the dragon, and the south node with the tail of this dragon. And there's actually a a really interesting um, story. It's like a mythological story about the cosmological the the creation of the cosmos that involves this dragon. That's kind of like the Thema Mundi. It's like a Thema Mundi type story, and Demetra. George actually translated a version of this um, story years ago um, about the the dragon having its head in um, I think it's a Gemini and its tail in Sagittarius at the birth of the cosmos and then it goes ar- goes about explaining the how the rest of the planets got assigned to different signs in the zodiac um anyways this seems to have come out of the Persian tradition and then we see, traces of it show up then within the next few centuries in the Western tradition where the medieval astrologers writing in Arabic start associating the North Node and calling it the head of the dragon and the South Node the tail of the dragon and deriving some significations from that. And then that tradition also kind of influences the Indian tradition a little bit, right?
1: Yeah, As I think well. that's interesting what, what you're talking about because in So in Parashara, for instance, one of the things in Parashara is that they did add Rahu Ketu to the uh, signs in which they are exalted. So Rahu, which signs? Taurus in in Parashara, it's in Taurus. The north node is exalted in Taurus, and the south node is exalted in Sagittarius. Uh, I'm sorry, Scorpio. But actually, then there are other traditions which happened later on, and maybe that's what's being you know mixed in with the Persian where. Rahu is exalted in Gemini, and Ketu is ex- is exalted in Sagittarius. Um, that was what I learned. So, um, and I always think that as well that, you know, Rahu, because it's like Saturn, um, maybe then just becomes friends with the same um, planets that Saturn is friends with. So here we have in the Indian tradition, Venus, Mercury, Saturn are friends, and Sun, Moon, Mars, Jupiter are friends. So then you get, the rahu exalted in uh, either taurus or gemini which are both venus and mercury ruled whereas ketu is going to be in scorpio or sagittarius which is mars or jupiter ruled but that's interesting that what you just said about the um the gemini and sagittarius cuz that makes sense in terms of saying that the nodes are exalted there in the indian
0: tradition okay. yeah i forgot about that that so that the it's like that tradition of the Prashra tradition has the nodes exalted in in Taurus, Taurus and, Scorpio. and Scorpio, and then yeah. this like medieval tradition coming from the Persians has them in Gemini and Sagittarius, and mm-hmm. that seems to have been the one that influenced the Western tradition where some astrologers start mentioning the nodes being exalted in those signs. Um, I wonder I if didn't that. i comes... learned
1: any exaltations myself, and I don't believe in polydeba. When I learned, you know, when I learned in India, they were, you know, my teacher. I had two teachers. one was academic, but the one I learned from in the bizarre, um he just used Podipaca, and I never learned anything about exaltations for the nodes. It was just later on when I started reading more and, you know, comparing um what I learned to other texts, you know, but yes, I think the Gemini and Sagittarius is is quite interesting because it, yeah, it makes perfect sense.
0: In terms yeah, of what you said. Ben and I actually came up with a rationale for that that was based on. Abu Mashar explains an astronomical rationale for that and putting it in a specific degree in Gemini Mm -hmm. that they must have used. Um, But I wonder if in the Indian tradition, for example, if the nodes got associated with um, Taurus and Scorpio because of the exaltations of the Moon, which has its exaltation in Taurus, and then the opposite to that would be Scorpio. So I wonder if that's connected at all about why they would have placed it there rather than anywhere else.
1: Mm, That makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't I haven't really thought about why it would be. Um, but it that does make sense that the moon yeah, because the moon's exaltation is Taurus. Sure. So
0: um I want to read this little myth that Demetra translated years mm-hmm. ago from a text in the CCHE. This is something that was probably originally written as like a in Persian and then was translated into Arabic, and then the Arabic version was translated into Greek several centuries later. So you can find it in the CCAG, and it's titled The Foundation of the Astrological Art, The Opinion According to the Chaldeans. So it says, The statements of a wise man concerning the diverse and manifold sphere according to the opinion of the experienced and most most wise Chaldeans. He said that all wise god fashioned a huge dragon in regards to its length and width and depth, and it had a dark-colored head called the Ascending One and on the eastern horizon and its tail called the descending one on the western horizon. Next, he began to make the 12 signs of the zodiac, each differing Mm -hmm. from the other in nature and position. I mean the ram, the bull, the twins, the crab, the lion, virgin, scales, scorpion, archer, goat, the water pourer, and the fish. And he commanded this same dragon to support six zodiacal signs upon its back, these so-called upright and slow-moving signs, the signs of long ascension, I mean the ones from the 30th degree of the twins to the 30th degree of the archer in the invisible hemisphere from the first degree of the horizon, that is to say from the east to the west and the remaining six zodiacal signs from the 30th degree of the archer to the 30th degree of the twins called the oblique and fast rising signs rising in the visible hemisphere. Next, he made the seven other visible planets or visible stars uh, Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, the Sun, Venus, Mercury, and the Moon. And then in the following manner, he placed the Moon in Cancer, the Sun in Leo, Mercury in Virgo, Venus in Libra, Mars in Scorpio, Jupiter in Sagittarius, and Saturn in Capricorn. So that's basically the creation of the Thema Mundi. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what's funny is it actually has this rationale. That it goes on to explain How the planets got assigned to the second sign of the zodiac, and it says, Thus he moved the brilliant Sun against the background of all the stars towards Virgo, Mm -hmm. and then towards each of the zodiacal signs in order from the west to the east. And Hermes, Mercury, seeing the Sun approaching him in Virgo, unable to bear the burning intensity of his rays, fled running full speed and came to the twins. So, Mercury basically like packs up his bags and moves from Virgo to the furthest sign away from the sun, which is Gemini. And then it says Mercury dwelt there for a time near the moon. Similarly, Aphrodite, Venus, seeing the sun coming towards Libra and not being able to withstand its rays, also went towards Taurus next to Mercury. She being turned away from him. Uh, yeah. And then it says Mars being against. The ram next to Venus is turned away from her and it just explains the rest of the planets Venus, Jupiter, and then Saturn eventually all move to their next sign, which explains the like second sign of the zodiac that each of them rule. And it says Saturn moving to Aquarius not having another place was overtaken under the beams of the sun as and was burnt up and dried out and through this became became black or dark. <laughs> And for this reason, he distributed two two houses to each of the appointed five stars and to the sun and moon one house each. Anyway, so it goes on and it has this whole other thing about um, the planets and about the creation of the exaltations as imposed on the Thema Mundi and the birth chart of the cosmos. And um, in particular, though, what was important is just that it said the dragon which it's using in this creation myth had its head um in the sign of gemini which would mm-hmm. be the 12th house in the thema mundi that has cancer rising and it had its tail in sagittarius which would be the 6th house in the thema mundi and what so, year is that
1: from the what she translated
0: um it's like the text the greek text itself was from the 14th century oh, okay. but it's probably copying over a text that sure. was written around the ninth century or probably earlier from the Persian tradition, like probably 6th century. Mm -hmm. So there's a great um, academic article on this, which is actually available on academia.edu for free. It's also published in a book, but um, it is titled, let me share it here on the screen really quickly. It's titled From Lunar Nodes to Eclipse Dragons, the Mm -hmm. Fundaments of the Chaldean Art and the Reception of Arabo-Persian Astrology in Byzantium by Adrian Mm Pertia. So you can find that on academia.edu. It gives a great overview of um, the early history of the nodes in the Western Greek tradition and how they weren't associated with the head or tail of the dragon, but then later through this Persian tradition and probably this Persian mythology, this notion of the dragon being associated with the nodes came to be integrated into it and how they created a new sort of Thema Mundi rationale to rationalize it or explain it.
1: Well, I think that what what happened also, if you look at Abu Mashar and you look at Parashara and you look at that kind of turning point around you know seventh, eighth century, all those years, it it does seem to have a turning point in how the nodes were done and what I sent right. you along with the Paladipika was something from Banati, which you've probably already seen that by that time Banati is quoting Abul Mashar.
0: Mm-hmm. I sent
1: it to you along with the um the Paladipika. Yeah, let to, me
0: open to. the Banati thing right now if you want.
1: Yeah, because he's also talking about from Abu Mashar. He's sort of quoting him. But um that whole period the nodes started to get used, you know, a lot. And so I think that, that that's why I always thought that the Um, You know, when the Muslim rule came into India in the second millennium, um, that was always what I thought Well, there's a lot of Persian influence there. And of course, then Tajika came about, which we know, and that also is a Persian influence, even though a lot of the Tajika texts don't really talk about the Nodes that much. But that doesn't mean they weren't in a lot of the Persian literature, and it doesn't mean that the Indians weren't familiarized with it. Because um, you know, especially if you read Al Biruni, I mean Al Biruni came to India and I mean and, and, and his whole book is, you know, Al Biruni's India. So he, you know, talks a lot about Varamahira and talks a lot about the astrology. I mean the book is not only about astrology, of course. There's a <laughs> section on it, but he talks about everything that he learned by being in India, you know, and then, you know, going back, um, you know, to the Persian tradition. So I think that I always thought myself, and also because Paladipika is a very, it's a very important text, and it's one that a lot of people use, um, even though it was written um, probably 13th, 14th century. So it's not classical um, it is taking the classical work of Parashara because the author Mantrasvara says so, but it's also taking into account a lot of other things that came from this Persian Arabic tradition because of the years that it was written. You couldn't not not have that tradition influence Indian astrology, and I think that what what happens a lot is that sometimes people forget that the astrology that that in, is done in India today and passed down is not just classically taken from one text of Parashara or one text of the 6th century. It's something that developed over many years because the beauty of India is that it's an unbroken tradition. You know, it never stopped, so it never got like, um, you know, it, it was never pillaged and it was never that things had to be retranslated. So a lot of astrologers by the time, you know, the 18th century, 19th, 20th century, they're using techniques that were, um, written from the Hellenistic tradition, from the Indian tradition, from the Persian tradition. It all gets, you know, mixed in, even though their basis is going to be what came About in the early part of the first millennium. What you have now is um, you have an amalgam of many different techniques that are, you know, that are part of, if you go to an astrologer in India, he'll, you know, talk about and use in their, um, you know, delineations. So I think that, you know, for me, that's always been the interesting thing, you know, when, you know, as the millennium, you know, came to a close and you had the uh, Muslim. You know, kind of occupation of India, how the astrology changed along with it. Yeah. I think
0: um, it seems like a lot of this stuff came out of the Persian tradition around the sixth century. And then that became um, a common, you know, transition point or transfer point Mm -hmm. between the Eastern and the Western traditions was Mm -hmm. that Persian tradition. Like you have what is essentially like modern day Iran right now. Right. And to the left of that, or to the west of that, you have Baghdad, Baghdad. And that's where all of the right. major um, astrologers that were writing in Arabic in the early medieval Western tradition in the eighth and ninth centuries, like Masha'Allah and Saul and Abu Mashar, were all in that area around Baghdad. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, then you have Iran acting as, or Persia acting as an intermediary. And then over to the right of that, you have, of course, India and the. Westernmost portions of India, where the Islamic rule like went right up to border that, and prior to that, the Persian Empire also bordered um, some of that as well. So there's this exchange that goes on between east and west in the medieval period, and mm-hmm. some of this doctrine or some of this the emphasis of the nodes may have come out of Iran, especially in terms of some of these this mythology about uh, dragon, mm-hmm. because yeah, in well, they- yeah. Go ahead, in Sarah. India, that at some point, they started associating it with maybe not the head of a dragon, but the head and tail of like a serpent or something, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was serpentine. I mean, I think. I mean, a lot of times when you're writing, I mean, even you know, I mean, I would write my book a lot differently, but I would talk about the Rahu Ketu being the dragon's head and tail because things got you know met, mixed in, and even in India, people talk about that. But really, there are no dragons in Indian mythology. It's not something they talked about. You know, they didn't exist the dragons. So if they were serpentine, you know that was the um, the um, symbology. It was more like the the whole idea of the whole serpentine and the way the the serpent. He explains that very well in Pertia's, Pertia's um, article. You know the shape and the, you know when you're talking about the the eclipse and how they kind of viewed the shape of it and the shadow um and that's how they kind of got the idea of the the dragon and of course the fire breathing but then they also got the idea of the serpent um symbols as well
0: so yeah uh, well isn't there like a, like a cobra or something doesn't it actually have the um shape the symbol basically that we use for the nodes mm-hmm. um like i just did a search for like snake you know node symbol yeah. and you you can kind of see it there it looks right. like a south node that's on the head of the snake
1: right 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 and in the, in some of the photos that you get like um that they have in the temples and you know these these sculptures and you have the gathering of the nine grahas that they really started um sculpting more towards the eighth, ninth, tenth century, you start seeing those nine grahas together. Whereas early on, you saw eight. You saw the, the seven with Rahu. You didn't see Ketu, but then later on, you saw it. You could see that the bo- that Ketu had like the, um, You know, the bottom of Ketu didn't look like the others. It was kind of like serpentine or like a fishtail sort of thing. So you could see the difference in how Ketu was, um, you know, portrayed in art, and how Rahu was portrayed as this big head. If you see the gathering um, of the, I don't, I don't know if I sent it to you, but um, if you see that. There's a lot of sculptures um, you know, available. I mean, they're in museums and you know, they're all over the internet. You just have to kind of, you know, yeah. look for the Navagraha and it'll
0: it'll show you that. Yeah. Here's another one that looks kind of like <laughs> the back of a snake. And there's like a for those just listening to the audio version, it's like there's two circles and then there's like a, a U that's underneath that connects them in a sense. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of very similar to what the symbols that we end up using for the north and south node look like. Yeah. Is a version of that, or like an in inverted version of that. Yeah. Um, so let's check out the excerpts from Binadi that you wanted to mention, um, because this sort of shows you where things headed in the Western tradition, especially after Abu Mashar and after, and the integration of this um, tradition from Persia with the nodes, as well as some of the earlier tradition from like Rhetorius on the nodes. Um, so, this is, I'm guessing, from like Ben's translation, right? Ben Dykes?
1: I don't know. You know, somebody posted this. I mean, so if I'm, I mean, if it's Ben's, I'm sorry that I didn't <laughs> acknowledge. It. Okay. Somebody happened to post it on a Jyotish uh, group that I'm with. And I thought, oh God, I'm like talking to Chris in a couple of days. I should just, you know, send this to you. I thought, let me send this to you along with Paula Deepika because, because they're around the same timing, you know, that this is from um, 13th century. Got it. So, okay. I thought, it was so interesting this is from.
0: 13th century binati sometime around like 1277 or 1300 CE um, in the West. And it says, and Abu Mashar said if the North Node, the head of the dragon were in the first house in any solar revolution or any natal chart or any horary chart, it signifies increase and strength and loftiness in that revolution, in that chart. And this according to its conjunction with the planets, for if the north node, the head, were joined with benefics, it signifies the increase of good. If, however, it was joined with the malefic, it signifies the increase of evil, since its nature is to increase. Mm-hmm. And if the north node were in the second house, it signifies good fortune and substance, and its increase, and it signifies the same in a nativity or in a hori question, if it were in the second. And the north node in the third, it signifies that the native will be an interpreter of dreams. And will be of good faith, and there will be useful short journeys in that revolution and acquisitions and profits. And if the North Node's in the 4th and the 4th house were Aries, Leo, or Sagittarius, or Gemini, or Libra, or Aquarius, it signifies the increase of good and profit from lands and vineyards and from other movable things. If, however, the 4th house were Taurus, Virgo, Capricorn, Cancer, Scorpio, Pisces, it signifies harm and the decrease of profit." If the North Node were in the 5th house, it signifies the fortune of children and from children and their increase and good and joy and freedom from contrary and displeasing things. And if the North Node were in the 6th, that signifies the increase of small animals which are not ridden and of slaves and there will be strong and harmful infirmities. And if the North Node were in the 7th, it signifies the increase of partners and good from women and an increase of sexual intercourse and strength of enemies. Um, and he just keeps going. Let me see.
1: So, Rahu and- is for them much more positive in general. The the whole yeah. idea of going towards something,
0: um, yeah, just increase, uh, increasing yeah, things, yeah, yeah, is like the primary underlying thing, which can be an increase of good things or an increase of bad things. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and if it's with positive, like I said, it's the same thing. In Poladipica, I mean, these were just the houses, but it also states in there, obviously, if it's with a benefic, it has those benefic qualities. And if it's with a malefic, it has the malefic qualities. It's the same thing. Yeah.
0: But so, this is much
1: more positive in terms of the north node, as opposed to the south node, there seems to be a little bit different. The south node is definitely it's taking away in this tradition also.
0: Yeah. The so the north and says- twelve
1: is not great. <laughs>
0: If, it, if the north node's in the 11th house, Abu Mashar said that there's no virtue of the head or the tail in it for good or evil. And if the north node were in the 12th house, it signifies the increase of evil and scarcity of good. Right. And he goes on, he says, if the south node, the tail of the dragon, were in the first house, um, it signifies the detriment of men and the native and the separating away of the good and eradication and dangers and tribulations and if a son were to remain rich after his father's passing away, he'll be reduced to poverty, and if he were to remain a pauper, he will persevere in it. Um, self note: in the second house, it signifies the destruction of all substances and the poverty of a native and his being in need and his being occupied with evils and his fall from his own station, and this will happen to him from a direction from which he will not have fear, nor will it be suspected. And if the South Node were in the third, it signifies the detriment of brothers and from brothers and sisters and because of them and their burden. Um, South Node in the fourth house, it signifies the poverty and need, enmity and labor, which they will sustain in the investigation of matters without usefulness. Fifth house, destruction of fortune and its expulsion and a case of horrible things upon children and that those who have children will be saddened because of it and they will be in need and that men will carry their own clothes. Um, it doesn't look
1: like the South Node is doing any good even in the houses that in the Indian tradition, it actually does some good. It seems like it's all pretty horrible.
0: Well, the one exception its any of the good the houses. It's, the South Node is decreasing good things, so it's impacting right. negatively. But it looks like when we get to the 6th, it says in the sixth house it signifies the laziness and weakness of male and female slaves and small animals and their decrease and a decrease of infirmities. And if there if there were infirmities they will be decreasing and diminishing right. and decimating or or exterminating mm-hmm. the bodies of the six. So there's same kind of thing. Yeah it sixth, will yeah. it's like almost maybe taking away some bad things with the sixth but mm-hmm. not entirely. And if the South Node were in the 7th house, it signifies that that men will not rejoice with their wives like they are used to rejoicing with them in other revolutions, and there will be quarrels and contentions between them. And this will happen more in the rustics and the common people than with others. Let me skip and see what it says about the 11th to the 12th. And if the South Node were in the 11th house, Abu Mashar says there's no operation for it. And if it were in the 12th, it signifies the detriment of large animals and the destruction of them and of enemies and few will be incarcerated in that revolution. And if they were incarcerated, the prisons will be emptied of them. The same will happen in nativities or in the revolutions if the tale is in the 12th. Indeed, Abu Mashar said if the tale were in the 12th house, it signifies a scarcity of good fortune and a scarcity of evils." So, He said concerning the significations of the planets and of the head and the tail and the 12 houses, if they were in better condition, say better. Indeed, if they were in bad condition, change the content and say the contrary of the good, namely the bad. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: All right. So that gives you an idea of where the Western tradition went, especially by the late medieval period in terms of interpreting the nodes as being about the North Node increasing and the South Node decreasing. And that stays, as far as I know, relatively consistent in the West, that tradition as well as some additional traditions that still carry on which continue to treat the eclipsing the nodes as being associated with eclipses and, and having a sort of negative or on, ominous or unstable quality occasionally like in some texts like the Picatrix. Mm-hmm. Um, over in the Indian tradition, I guess it's more of like a continuation primarily of the Prashra tradition and where we saw the Phaladeepika going, right? Mm-hmm. Is that pretty? Standard. Yeah.
1: yeah, it is standard, except that, you know, in modern times, we shouldn't think that everything is as bad as they say because there are always ways to remediate. I mean, that's the other thing, is that there are remedial measures and there are also things within the chart itself that you can take, you know, so you can look at the dispositor of a, a node and see where that goes. You can look at the, you know, aspects. You can look at transits, dashas. Not everything is going to be terrible. You can have wonderful things happen in in Rahu dasha or Ketu dasha. They're extreme, you know. I mean, we, we ha- we're not talking about the modern. We were really tracing a lot of that. But the malefic quality stays, meaning that, you know, like in any tradition, malefics are not necessarily going to kill you, but they really allow you to kind of move forward with certain challenges in your life. And they're the things that really give you, I think, that kick and that strength. I mean, sometimes we'd rather not have all of that. Of course, we'd wish that everything was easy, but, um, but the malefics can teach us really good lessons. I mean, the thing is when you're doing, I mean, you know, because you do traditional astrology and you have to explain it to a modern audience. And you have to, I, I mean, for me, always the, the beautiful challenges, you know, were the fact that I would take old, old, you know, uh, delineations and see how they would translate. So you take things like snake bites, and Rahu and Ketu actually, you know, are, are talked about in some of these texts as causing illness caused by venom, you know, so, you know, what does that mean? Well, you take that and you can say, well, you know, that can mean toxicity in terms of, you know, substance abuse, you know, things that you're taking into your body that are going to be toxic, Um, even, you know, allergies, you know, things or medications, things like that. So you're always having to sort of, you know, I think that the chal- the beauty, what I love about traditional astrology is so much of it really is there, but you just have to kind of, Translated into an audience, you know, something for your audience because we do live in, you know modern times. You know, what killed you a thousand years ago isn't going to kill you today, necessarily. Of course, we now have a virus that's killing us. you know, so it's kind of interesting when you when you think about that and the whole idea of, you know, venom and and stuff like that. But, you know, I think, you know, going back to our starting point with Rajaro Shulman, I mean, one of the things that they did do, I think when when I read Shulman's book, especially is, you know, I always tell people, you know, if you believe in reincarnation, that's wonderful. But if you don't, you can still take that book and really look at some nice, you know, imagery for what the nodes represent. And it does represent that idea of increase and not necessarily taking away or decrease with the south node, but more as if it's a point of comfort, you know. So you can look at it as saying, okay, that's my past life, but you don't have to. You know, you can look at the south node as being the place that You know you're you're comfortable with, but that doesn't challenge you. You know, and the North Node is sort of like the place that challenges you that you you want to go towards because it will reward you. You know, if you if if you allow it to, uh, if you take advantage of it, Um, and that that was kind of what he was saying in his book. So that's where
0: Rudyard started taking it. it. Started in 1936 as Rudyard tried to go back, and he was reading some of the inherited mainly the later um, Renaissance tradition of authors like William Lilly and people after that who continued that direction to some extent that Bonatti took of treating the North Node as having to do with increase and the South Node with decrease. And Riggio tried to go back to first principles, and you can kind of see him philosophizing. And he takes that notion of increase and decrease and the North Node moving upwards and the South Node moving um, downwards, and he starts associating it with like directionality and talking about past and future. Um, which it, you you can when you read this kind of brief treatment in the astrology of personality, you can see that he's kind of like riffing on it as something that's not fully formulated yet, but he says almost like speculatively or, or like perhaps this could be something that could be applied to past, you know, a future life and where you're going versus your past life. And whatever karma or whatever things you've brought into this life because he had a background in theosophy and he was very much influenced by some of the ways that the theosophists were integrating Hindu doctrines of like karma and reincarnation and things like that. Um, So that was Rudyard in 1936, but then by the time we get to Martin Schulman, and that book's in like what, 1960
1: or 1970? 75 I think it was, yeah, mid-70s. He did it. I think it was 75. And the other thing that I had told you when when we were talking back and forth is the interesting thing is like Margaret Hone. Now, her book, A Textbook of Astrology, you know, a lot of your viewers won't know it. But in the 50s and 60s, even 70s, that was the main text for the Faculty of Astrological Studies in England. That was their text. And when I went through her text, I mean, the North Node and South Node weren't used, really. She does say something in there about that it's used in Hindu astrology. But I remember when I started to take the faculty course, I think it was in the late 70s, I started it and then I, I never finished it. They had a lot of um, articles that they gave you as supplementary material. So I do believe they had something on the notes. Of course, they've revamped their whole, um, their whole curriculum and their whole syllabus. But, um, but she was really considered to have, be the main textbook that was used um, for the faculty, and um, so so the nodes, and then you have also, you know, like you said in the beginning, you know, evolutionary astrology, which you know I'm I'm not really that involved with or familiar with, except that they do use the nodes as a starting off point.
0: Yeah, as they do f- with
1: draconic astrology. There's also let me the whole school. Yeah, sorry. My previous
0: point before we get there about evolutionary, but so the the development of this is. Rhoda is the first one, as far as I can tell, to make the suggestion that they could have to do with past and future lives. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's speculatively presented in basically in 1936 in the Astrology of Personality. And then by like 1975 or so, Martin Schulman publishes this book on the nodes, where he goes through and treats them much more explicitly as having to do with with past and future lives, and, mm-hmm. and provides actual delineations through each of the wow. houses for that. And some astrologers that I've talked to, like Stephen Forrest, have said when they came into astrology, that book had an important influence on them. And it was just something that was taken for granted at that point that the Mm -hmm. nodes pertain to past and future lives. And so that it became, by the last quarter, last two decades of the 20th century, something that was sort of taken for granted by many modern Western astrologers, especially those that were more spiritually oriented or more oriented towards incorporating doctrines of karma and past lives into their mm-hmm. astrology, which became especially prominent in like the evolutionary astrology school with Stephen Forrest and Jeffy Wolf Green, mm-hmm. but also even in other authors like Jan Spiller, for example, mm-hmm. that is a very important and like key concept in her book that she mm-hmm. she sort of uses and delineates. Um Okay, so so that's where we're at today in terms of the development of that doctrine, and what what were you just saying about evolutionary astrology?
1: Well, what I was what I was saying was that then suddenly, you know, after you had this sort of um, nobody was talking about the nodes that much. There were a lot of books on the nodes. Um, again, some of them out of print. I mean, the Hubers in Switzerland, Louise and Bruno Huber, who really were very very well known, and they did conferences in um, in Switzerland. As I was saying before we started. Um, They also wrote a book called Moon Node Astrology. And my teacher, when I first started studying astrology, learned from them and uh, and talked about very much very similar things to what Martin Schulman describes the nodes in the houses, although he wasn't talking about it as much as in past lives. But like I said, the delineations are really good. And I think that was a turning point for me because I learned Western astrology before I learned Indian astrology. And to me, when I read Martin Schulman's book— I was like, wow, I mean, the nodes, perfect, clear, because the nodes were something that people were very kind of, you know, very vague on. And and Schulman's book was really, I think it was, it's a short book. It's a great book. It's it's really good in terms of that increase and decrease, you know, where you're going to, you know, push yourself to that north node. You know, that's where you you need to go sort of for your evolution. Um, so I I'm I, I I'm aware and I agree that that must have been a very huge influence on evolutionary astrology and yeah Jan, Jan Spiller and um, yeah the Hubers had moons nodes and then there was a book by Teal on the nodes and um, Pam Crane in um, the UK wrote a book on draconic astrology which is
0: a whole other um, yeah other that's field a whole that's other topic. a whole other
1: thing we don't have to get into that but I mean, that's also that-
0: that's an extension of draconic astrology is an extension of how um, the nodes went from not a huge thing in Western astrology to or is an extension of how much in modern Western astrology in this in the final quarter of the 20th century became um, crazy almost crazy about the nodes and like the mm-hmm. nodes, for many people are the first things that you look at in a chart and are the most important things that you look at in some schools of astrology or some approaches. And draconic astrology takes that further, but that's a whole, the history behind that is a whole separate <laughs> thing because I think that's based on a misinterpretation of an ancient text that some astrologers thought it meant something else, that they were creating a whole new zodiac, but they didn't mm-hmm. understand. It actually goes back to the very text that we're talking about, about the dragon right. that's being created um, in order to explain the rationale for um, the exaltation of the nodes in Gemini and Sagittarius. I think that's the text that was misinterpreted, and they thought it meant that you start the zodiac from the degree from that the nodes are placed mm-hmm. in. Um, so that's created a whole other variant tradition out of um, maybe a misreading. But that's an episode I hope to do at some point. My um, point with
1: that is more just to say that yes, in the last quarter of the 20th century, the nodes kind of had this revival, or maybe even not a revival, but it started. They started to get noted as a very important factor. Um, you know, in the chart. So I, I think that, and you know, and I mean, we always go back to Martin Shulman's book because his book really was the first one that many of us of a certain era, you know, Stephen and I were kind of of the same era, uh, we're a few years apart. He's he's a little older than me. <laughs> but um, other than that, um, I think that that book was very, um, very important. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, I I think I don't know if it's out of print or not. I mean, Martin Schulman is not somebody who's kind of gone to conferences and been around, so he might be living a very nice life, and you know, we just haven't heard much from him. Um, but yeah, his other, I'm not sure. Know.
0: It looks like 75. You're. It looks like you're right. That 75 was the. Um, date on the publication of that and it was titled Karmic Astrology the Moon's Nodes and Reincarnation and it was part mm-hmm. of a series of like three or four books right where he did another one on the lot of fortune and another one on
1: retrogrades
0: the second was? one
1: was on retrogrades and the third one was called Joy and the Part of Fortune i have to tell you each of those books are really nice short books but will we'll, are very clear you know about how to look at retrogrades in the chart and how to look at the part of fortune in the chart it's it's kind of an interesting um Interesting, you know. About again, that was something that we didn't really look at that much. You know, we knew that it existed, the part of fortune, but
0: you right. Know, people... But part of part of my issue with it, because what when I came and just tried to research all of this and studying the history of astrology by the mid to late two thousands, um, the issue that I ran into when I reconstructed um, the history of the use of the nodes in different traditions is it means there was at least like three or four distinct traditions of how to treat the nodes and what they meant. Mm -hmm. And they were all somewhat different and not Mm -hmm. entirely related. Mm -hmm. So there's like one tradition, which is um the how do I I'm not sure if to I should do them chronologically or reverse chronologically, (laughs) but one version is the modern version, which is the north node has to do with your future and the south node has to do with your past life. Mm -hmm. So that's Pretty much it. And it's explicitly tied into the notion of the South Node or the assumption that the South Node has to do with the past life. But that is a concept, is new and wasn't used prior to the past century, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, So it doesn't actually have any precedent. And it's not like, you know, we don't. I don't know. Yeah, it just gets into a whole separate category where mm-hmm. it's assumed that that's always been part of the tradition, but in fact, it's a recent take on mm-hmm. what the nodes mean. So that's one right. tradition. Then there's um, there's the medieval and Renaissance like Western tradition that partially comes out of parts of late Hellenistic astrology, which is that the North Node has to do with increase and the South Node has to do with decrease, but it doesn't have any connections with past lives or anything like that. Um, then there's the Indian tradition, which is the Parashara tradition, which treat the nodes as um, being very important and sort of um, crucial in different ways by being integrated into dasha systems and almost treated as given the status of planets, but not mm-hmm. quite. Um, and the nodes there are treated as somewhat difficult and sort of um destabilizing factors, I guess is the best summary, or what's your best like one-sentence summary of the nodes in Indian astrology in the Parashara tradition?
1: Well, I always look at them as being intensifiers, you know, that everything gets very intensified when they're with the nodes, and the nodes create a lot of challenges to the their general nature. So I always like to to take on the whole idea of Saturn Rahu is like Saturn, but different, you know, in terms of the fact that it's more voracious. Saturn is patient, you know, Saturn has delays in structure. The node has no structure, you know, because it's that head that keeps going over and over. It's compulsive. But like Saturn, like Saturn, it's material. So they consider it material. It it, it wants to gather. It wants to succeed. Um, you know, I mean, I don't want to go into, we can go into Donald Trump, but I mean, there's that, 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 He was born on an exact eclipse. He's a perfect example of the node in the 10th house, very close to the sun. Then you get the Ketu or the south node, again, an intensifier, but like Mars, it goes quickly, you know, so it can destroy very quickly if you're not careful. It's like, don't get too close to the fire because it burns you, but it can even work in a a very different way than Mars. It can be more destructive. But yet the positive part of Ketu is that you can go quickly and really take those challenges on you know, but you have to watch it. So again, they're intensifiers, but they're challenges, they're demonic. By When I mean demonic, in, in India, they're considered demonic. It's sort of like, you know, like Faust, you know, like you can make a, you know, a, a pact with the devil so that you you can take it too far and it'll burn you. But if you kind of play along with it and go with their intensity and really meet the challenge of it, you can have a, you know, you can really succeed. But but they have their malefic qualities and their dangers, you know. I mean, I'm being a little dramatic, but <laughs> you know. But you know, on the other hand, they can be wonderful. So I think that I think that's what people were always afraid of. You know, as the years go on, people are are embracing Indian astrology more and classical astrology, traditional astrology. But when I started out and told people I I had gone to India, they were like, "Oh no, 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 no! Please, I don't know. I don't want to know when I'm going to die." And I'm like, well, neither do I, you know? So I'm not really looking at it that way. People were very afraid, you know, of of the Indian tradition. And and part of it was because of the way th- the nodes and other malefic forces are conveyed, you know, in some of these texts. And also, you know, if you went to India many years ago, a lot of astrologers were were very cut and dry, you know? They were not—they didn't mince words. So, you know— Right. Uh, That's a whole other experience, you know. But, yeah. So,
0: so. But in your the... your
1: position, I think what you said is correct in terms of looking at it in terms of different, you know, cycles or different, you know, partitions, so to speak. You know, yeah, that works. So I in
0: mean. the 90s, weren't there some Western astrologers that got into Indian astrology that tried to make analogies between the outer planets and the nodes in order to explain how they're conceptualized in Indian astrology as well?
1: Right. So when I, I mean, and we we did this a lot when we were starting to teach Western audiences. You know, we we had to be very careful because people were having a hard time kind of adapting to it. I think in this day and age, everybody is so sophisticated with with traditional techniques. You know, that they can grab onto it easier. But we always thought that you know, when I was explaining Rahu and Ketu, I would explain it that Rahu can sometimes be like Uranus or Pluto. You know, and that. Ketu can be like Neptune uh, because it's very amorphous. And um, I know some people say, well, how do you have Mars and Neptune? But actually, they can work in very similar ways in terms of that ability to obliterate um, and the smoke, the fire. But um, Uranus and Pluto, again, they're like the independent outsiders, you know, the outer planets in your chart have a lot to do with things that you're doing that are against the norm. And of course, when I was growing up, things that were against the norm are now quite accepted, so you have to reevaluate what's against the norm. But um, I think the thing is, is that as that went on, you had to do that because people would say, how can you take away my Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto? You know, Or the same with the sidereal zodiac, how can I be a Taurus in one system and Aries in another? So um, I think that that was how we had to explain Rahu Ketu because people did not want to, you know, because Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto are there. And most of us, most, you know, there are a lot of Indian astrologers who call themselves Neo-Vedic or something. But, you know, when I look at a chart, and I look especially at the transits, I'm going to use Neptune, Pluto, and Uranus. I mean... Don't you use the transits of Uranus, Neptune, Pluto in your yeah, work? Yeah, I do.
0: Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't want to go into too much of a digression about that because I know you've got to go soon, right. actually, because you no, have to give okay. a, a lecture. Uh, what time is your lecture? My lecture is no, it at, at seven. I'm okay. Okay. Um, seven. I'm so, okay. seven,
1: my time. <laughs> Four
0: years. No, so Uranus, years. Uranus and Pluto, so. some of the Western Neo Vedic astrologers associated Uranus and Pluto, you said, with the North Node? Yeah,
1: I used to think, I used to, well, I used that, to say,
0: That's how I did it. Dennis
1: and I would do that. I mean, Dennis Harness and I would talk about it. And I remember we always agreed that Ketu was like Neptune because it was like just formless, you know, and that Uranus and Pluto could also um, be uh, similar to Rahu in that, you know, the intensity of it, first of all, and also the nonconformity you know of it because that was the other thing that the the nodes were, um, you know, the outsiders at the party. You know, going back to that myth, you know, where the you know the where Rahu disguised himself as a god in order to drink some of that Amrita because the gods didn't want him to. So um, so they're always like the the outcasts. You know, the party invade. You know, people who invade you or something like that. Um, okay, and so that gives
0: another. I mean, I like in terms of how that you guys were trying to convey how the nodes are conceptualized in Indian astrology and explain those significations to Western audiences, it's interesting then hearing some of those associations. Um, so with all of this, it's like when I ran into all of this 10 years ago, I decided to take the nodes out of charts and stop using them for a while in order to re- rebuild my understanding of them from scratch because mm-hmm. I was concerned that there were too many separate traditions that were treating them wildly differently Mm -hmm. without much overlap and that um, there were too many assumptions that were being made about how important they were and what kind of cosmological or um, religious undertones were being attributed to them in terms of saying that definitely had to do with past lives or what have you. So I wanted to take them out and then I've only started to reintroduce them gradually over the years in order to mm-hmm. try to rebuild my understanding from scratch. And I think that's a good thing to do in terms of not making assumptions about things, but instead trying to, um, now that we have access to all these different traditions, figuring out how to reconcile them as one of our great challenges as astrologers mm-hmm. and um, how, to, how to maybe integrate them carefully or deliberately while also paying attention to other things like empirical observation of like what do these things actually do in practice or what do you see up, see show up when the nodes transit over a certain point or, or what have you.
1: Yeah. That's um, a whole other know, that's a whole other episode. <laughs>
0: yeah. And, and and the other major area and, and really the main area where I use them at all at this point is just with eclipses because that is the primary thing mm-hmm, that they're connected sure. to is the is the eclipse cycle. Um and that's a valid Additional, like, way to, to use nodes. And I know that eclipses is something you've done a lot of work on as well, right?
1: Yeah, with the nodes. I also wanted to say that, especially in Paladeepika, when he was talking about transits, as I was saying, that the nodes tend to do well or better in three, six, 10, and 11, when he talks about the transits in a whole sign house system, of course, like as you do, um, either from the moon, because the moon is very important, you do it from the moon or from the ascendant. So when the nodes transit, the, and again, just Rahu, he doesn't mention Ketu transit. When the node transits the third house, the sixth house, the 10th or the 11th, they give you positive outcomes. So, I mean, again, you have to take everything into account, dashes and uh, transits and everything else that's going on, you know, perfections, you throw in perfections too, and uh, then you can get something. But as a general rule, that's what they say. And, um, oh, yeah, I mean, the eclipses are something, uh, you know, in terms of my predictive work, I mean, I think eclipses on a mundane level and on a um, a natal level, I think that eclipses are probably one of the most powerful things. Again, that's a whole other episode. But, yeah, I do a lot of work with the nodes hitting the eclipse point because the nodes are part of the eclipse. And um, and when they activate the degree of the eclipse, I, so really
0: I. quickly, what is that? What's the nodes hitting the eclipse point?
1: So when you have an eclipse, you have the nodes very close to the eclipse, and the degree. If you take the degree of the eclipse, the node either hits it, um, hits that degree prior to the eclipse or after the eclipse. So oftentimes, when the node kind of hits the same degree or a planet, you can get Mars, Saturn, things. You know, happen. So, for instance, if you take the the last eclipse of December fourteenth that we had, um, the the node uh, came to that eclipse degree in September. You know, so that was like because it was a total eclipse. So between September and December, when you looked at things, I mean, it was actually on the degree of Donald Trump's moon. You know, that eclipse. So that was one of the things that, you know, we kind of, I kind of saw that something was going to happen in September that was then going to, in December, kind of have its resolution or something mm-hmm. like that. And indeed, in, in in September, what happened in his chart is that the node, uh, the south node was crossing his moon. And again, I'm doing sidereal with a whole sign house system. So in, in that system, he has moon Ketu in the fourth, and he has Rahu Sun in the 10th on a very exact, almost uh, lunar eclipse that he was born under. So you had the south node hit the moon and Ketu, and then you had the north node hit his son Rahu. And he had a great achievement in September on that 10th house because he he got the uh, Amy Coney Barrett into the Supreme Court very quickly. But then he had Ketu going through his moon, which was the ruler of his 12th. And that he got COVID in that period too. So Mm. there were two things. And again, I look at that as like the country because the president is always representative of the country. And then the eclipse occurred on December 14th and what happened then was that was when they certified the ballots, which was a very interesting phenomenon this this year.
0: Yeah, that was huge. I mean, that I know, was the big, it was amazing, um, wasn't it? Eclipse thing that was eclipse thing that was the most impressive this election cycle was that on December fourteenth there was an eclipse, which uh, was tropically in Sagittarius, which is in Joe Biden's rising sign, and that was the day that the Electoral College voted and certified that he had won the election, basically. Um, that and was it was an exactly
1: on – and it was on Donald Trump's moon and Ketu and acti- mm. activating that. And, you know, that was – I mean, that was one reason. I mean, I don't make necessarily predictions publicly, but, you know, I, and also because I have to watch my own politics and make sure that that's not influencing – you know my astrology so it's it's very hard i think it's a fine line that you walk if you're making public predictions but i think what happened then the interesting thing was it r- went right over his moon and the moon was the lord of the 12th and it was in the 4th so it was like the loss of the 4th and i mean just just as an aside i mean somebody many years ago i don't remember who it was i believe it was an indian astrologer told me that when you're predicting elections and don't look at the 10th house. Don't look at anything that has to do with what somebody is going to get. Look at the 4th house because the person who has malefics in the 4th has to move. Right. So if so, if they're an incumbent and they have this, you know, malefic force on their 4th house, they have to go. So it was it's kind of interesting. But those are the kind of things right. when you're looking at the nodes, you know, that something starts and finishes and… Even with pandemics last year, December 2019, there was a solar eclipse, um, December 26th. And then in when, when Ketu and Mars together. So when Ketu Mars, because Ketu is like Mars. So when it transits together, it can give very explosive things. They were conjunct on 9-11. And then last year, they were conjunct in February. February, March, when we had the real pandemic all over the place, and that activated that eclipse in December, which kind of already was, you know, having the um, pandemic in China was already there, you know, so there's all the, I can go on and on about that, but that'll be another episode. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, um and I Lisa and I did an episode on eclipses interpreting transiting eclipses based on what houses they're falling in your birth chart in episode right. 215 so people can check that out if they want to learn more about that. Um I think we did I think we did a pretty good overview of the astrological tradition and some of the different traditions and ways that the nodes were dealt with traditionally prior to modern times. Um, in the Persian and Arabic and Indian astrological traditions and to a lesser extent in the Greek astrological traditions. So um, thank you. Thank you for doing this with me. I appreciate it, and I hope it gives people some a broader perspective or at least some avenues for research for understanding the nodes better. Um, where can people find out more information about your work and what you have going on?
1: Yeah, they can just go to my website, ronidryer.com, R-O-N-N-I-E-D-R-E-Y-E-R.com, and um, I'm always teaching Indian astrology, but also you can sign up for my newsletter on that website, and I do a newsletter once a month, at least I try to. And, uh, you know, I talk about current planetary weather and uh, conferences and things like that. Um I probably am speaking at a few conferences coming up, Um one, the Great Lakes Conference in July, and I'm speaking for the Hartford Astrology Group, which now because it's Zoom, you don't have to be in Connecticut. Um, I'm talking about fixed stars, and I'm doing a workshop on predictive techniques, which will include Dashes and eclipses. So, um, and so listen, I'm so happy to have done this, Chris, because we have been talking about this for so long and, um, I love your podcast. I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't listen to all of them, but I do listen to a lot of them. And, uh, especially because it means a lot to me also because I was on Jackie's original podcast, who you, who you got this from Jackie Memkis. and, um, and I was very friendly with Jackie. So we, I was very happy when you took it over and you also... You know, really kind of expanded it so much. So I've been listening to you since you took it over. So um, anyway, I I do appreciate it, and I know we just touched the surface, and there's a million things that we didn't say, but that just shows you the depth of um, the topic, you know. And um, yeah, and I think it's great people can do their own research, you know.
0: Yeah, well, I think a little two hour episode covering two thousand years of history is pretty pretty good, <laughs> and I think we did we did a decent job. So. Um, yeah, there uh, maybe there'll be follow up episodes. Missed. I'm sure people will have comments uh, for us below the video version or on the podcast website. So feel free, people, to leave comments there. And um, I guess that's and it mention, for this episode. Yeah, just Go one thing.
1: Mention Adams because I mean Adams was really great when you talked about the eclipses on that um, podcast. What, yeah, which that podcast was... was that? What number? <laughs> I know um, you mentioned it in
0: the It was episode 127. Yeah. Uh, all, to listen to. It was titled Unexpected Lunar Nodes Discussion with Adam Summer back in October of 2017. So there's no video version of that. There's just an audio version, but you can find that along with a transcript on the astrologypodcast.com website just by googling googling it or looking it up at astrologypodcast.com/episodes. Great! All right, I think that's it. You've got to go give a lecture on the nodes for an online I conference do, except, today. Yeah,
1: in an hour and a half. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you go, but thanks everybody for listening to this episode of The Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to the patrons who supported the production of this episode of The Astrology Podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our Producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Marin Altman, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Michelle Marillot, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopik, Nadia Habhab, and Issa Sabah. For more information about how to become a patron and get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes, visit patreon.com slash astrology Also, special thanks to our sponsors including the Northwest Astrological Conference which is happening online May 27th through the 31st, 2021. Find out more information at norwac.net, The Mountain Astrologer magazine, which you can find out more information about at mountainastrologer.com. The ISAR Astrology Conference happening August 18th through the 22nd, 2021. More information at isar2020.org. The Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, which you can find out more information about at honeycomb.co also the Portland School of Astrology, more information at portlandastrology.org, the AstroGold Astrology app, available for both iPhone and Android, available at astrogold.io. And finally, the primary software program that we use on episodes of the Astrology Podcast is called Solar Fire Astrology Software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can get a 15% discount with the promo code AP15.